Uh, today's the first day of summer, and it was hot this weekend. Yeah. Like, we, we had Father's Day yesterday, and um, there's a place on 290 called Dreamland that has, like, uh, covered pickleball, uh, pickleball courts. Mm-hmm. Say that word twice, pickleball courts. Pickleball, pickleball courts, pickleball courts. <clears throat> Fuck you. <laughs> so we, we went out to play, and, like, you I think... You may not uh, have the same TBIs. Well, I don't know. You play lacrosse, I assume. Yeah, no, he's smashed fine. your head into people, too. Uh, so they got these covered pickleball courts, and... Like the only times we had were like, I want to say it was like three to like four thirty. So, um, uh, thank God they're covered, but it was hot and we were out there playing pickleball and I was beating up on some old dudes that had like double knee replacements, trying to get <laughs> drop shots, fucking them up. Yeah. It was fun. We had a good time. Sucker. Yeah. I got you good. You fucker. It's just a game. Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, uh, it's always funny when like you see things like uh pickleball, which is by far, I mean, it's got a wiffle ball. It's like, like. It's not like ping pong. What do you, you mean? Know, which is really competitive. Oh, no, no. Pickleball can get competitive. I know. And people were really It sounds really like getting... your opponents just weren't up to snuff. Uh, no, I played against Thad. Uh, he's my buddy, uh, Thad. We went as families. And uh, he, all of a sudden, we get over there, and he like pulls out his own rackets. And I'm like, oh. Ringer. I was like, your own for, rackets. He's like, well, we played ball. a little bit. Yeah, for pickleball. So like he, dabble. Yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm okay with it. So I come out, and uh, we have a uh, ping pong table here. And so we're pretty decent ping pong players, yeah. and it's just like playing ping pong. So uh, I just had to watch a little bit to figure it out. But then all of a sudden, the heat was getting to him, and I could see him bending over, which at that point, then all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, pick up the pace. I'm going to yeah. fucking run you into the yeah. ground and try to fucking suicide pace uh, pre-Fontaine this shit. <laughs> so it was fun. Uh, we had a good time, though. We had a, pick, we had a ping pong table. <clears throat> My first deployment, we made it out of uh, plywood. So, like, the spin and the bounce and all were all just – it was kind of like, I guess in tennis when you have like the clay court versus whatever other courts, it was like very specific home court. And uh, I wasn't as good, but one of my buddies who ended up saving my life, he was just like, you know, he's like full on like fanning his arm up in the air, like arcing it and like curving and slicing every single hit. I've beat him once. <laughs> so, well, you better keep that ball. He, he did. Uh, yeah. He did a deployment in like South Korea, where they like yeah. have like the world's best ping pong players in South and, Korea and yeah. pool. So the yeah, the, when we fought in the war in the seventies, brought pool tables over to Vietnam and then left them there, and they were all outdoor, and they had just different spins. So people grew up learning to play on outdoor fields, and that's why some of the best pool players and trick shot guys are from just Vietnam, Korea. Because why, why outside? I don't know. Like they, the they had a place. No, they just didn't have anywhere to to put the pool tables. That's oh, all the ping. All the so pool then they kept them there, and it was just real. You had to really learn the touch and the spin, all the finesse. It's because like a of such dream. a shitty table. And then you get a good table in the U.S. It's killing it. Fucking baby games. Plus, so what? Uh, uh, you guys were playing ping pong, but were you really playing beer pong? It was like sounds like a beer pong table. Uh, 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 for my deployments, they actually didn't have any alcohol. Yeah, uh-huh. it's actually it's pretty not allowed, but. There are people that do it, and there are people that will get drunk and do stupid shit, like with uh, things that go make loud noises that you shouldn't be messing with. But for us, I was at an outpost, like living in the dust for a while, and uh, our form of entertainment was just, you know, dick. Imagine like your locker room thing, where there is no like everybody's sober all the time, and you're and you're in your locker room all the time, and then occasionally you go out and play your football game. Like I think the mentality is kind of similar between those cultures, but like. You know, you're just with dudes all day, so you're just dicking around and yeah, you rag on each other. Yeah, you know how it is. So it's yeah. just like that, but all the time. And you're doing stupid shit all the time. So it's like 
not stupid, but like stuff you don't want to do. Like, oh, we got to take, you know, like 400 cases of water and put it in this Connex. <laughs> so <laughs> stuff like that. Nice. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was cool. But uh, living in an outpost is not cool a lot of the time because, like, as a medic, I'm like focused on preventative medicine. It, like, <laughs> I think you're you like would appreciate uh, crotch rot and athlete's foot. <laughs> well, you. I was just about to bring this up because I think you would be really amused. Like, as a when I think of teammates and you have like someone who has a sense of humor and is like, you know, will give you a little shit along the way. But there were like, there was a week where I got like three or four Afghans. I was doing clinical medicine with them, but I they were like, there's something wrong with my balls. And uh, so then they would end up showing me like their dick and balls. And I was like, after the third or fourth guy, like the interpreter was like, someone has a problem. I was like, all right, what is it? And they're like, oh, it's like near his, near his balls. And I was like, all right, you guys like, is this a fucking joke? Like, are you guys fucking with me at this point? No, like, <laughs> they like, were fucking. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, one that, of them was yeah. like clean shaven, like out in his outpost. So he wasn't like showering and he was like all clean shaven. He got like an infection down there and that can be gnarly. Uh, but, and then the other time is like when they would make us food, um, they made us food one night and then the next morning there was this big bowl and I think it's what they made the rice in. And I stepped out of my med medical structure that I slept in. And then the guys that lived in our outpost were like 10 feet away. And one of them was in the bowl. And this is what he was doing in the morning, washing his face. <laughs> he was like, had his feet and his hands like in the bowl of water that the same shit that the rice was in the night before. And I was like, oh God, I was like, we could, we, this, this won't do, you know, like as a medic, I was like, I gotta, I don't know if I can teach them hygiene. So I just got to teach my guys like, Hey, don't eat that anymore. <laughs> like, but that's the oh, kind of geez. stuff I was running into with Afghans. It's always like a, I don't know, like a, there's a bunch of like lack of education and a bunch of cultural things where there's just like hygiene is not a, like there's no concept of bacteria and stuff. So eh, maybe that just makes your immune systems that much stronger. Potentially. And then that's why the 40 year old guys look like they're 88 <laughs> like in a village elder. You're like, hey, the village elder. And you're like, how old are you? You're like 36. You're like, oh, God, <laughs> you're fucking aging in dog years. Yeah. There is one dude in a in a we went in and we expected contact and then we like walked down like a fifteen hundred feet down in this valley. And when we got down there, there was just there was no bad guys and so I was just like, oh man, it's kind of like, hey, we're not playing the game today that you that you practice for. <laughs> so we like walked down and they were giving us tea and everything. And there was one guy who was like, alaikum. like he was old as fuck. And I was like, whoa, that guy's awesome. So I like went over and was like. Because I knew enough Pashto to talk to him, but he's like, ah. <laughs> so there are like funny things along the way. And like when you're, for me, if I was bored, even if I was like in a firefight, I would like try and joke around and like lighten the mood a little. I even mm-hmm. joked around when I got blown up. <laughs> One of the, the other medic came up and was like, he called me the wrong name because I was just covered in dust and dirt. And he was like, I got you, so and so. And I was like, I'm fucking Justin, dickhead. <laughs> I called him a dickhead. And uh, but I did it like on purpose to be silly. But I was like incredible. I was like oh, incredible pain laying on the ground. But yeah. So I guess like the summary for the show is that like I started the '70s big stuff, did that for a bit, and then in 2013, Shit, man, we we met in like 2008, 2009. Yeah. When uh, you were Two. Yeah. Which means <laughs> that you were Mark Ripto's assistant. So we had yes. Toe and Two. Yes. And uh... <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was. Uh, I don't know if we ever called you that, but we used to call, uh, we, we referred to you as Ripito to Ripito, and uh, he did not like that fucking at all. Which, at which point, just becomes 
like having to work it into oh, every it's other gaslight. Yeah. Oh, right. Like you yeah. can't. Like, yeah. like I tell my kids this. I'm like, if somebody ever gives you a nickname, just instantly own it. Tell them how great it is. It's the funniest yeah. thing. Call yourself that. Just own any nickname. If you don't like something, the minute that they see you don't, it just becomes fucking set in stone. Right. It's so a, it's like it's a it's a yeah. fantastic adaptation, and it like fe- that feels very similar to like how I would interact with you because I remember observing you do that with Rip because my relationship with him at the time was such that I didn't really dick around with him. I didn't really like mock him, but you like openly did. And I thought it was hilarious, but yeah. So, Oh yeah. No, uh, I mean, I can see uh, him being mildly irritated by that. To this day, I still mock him. Like I'll call up and just randomly call him and be like, Oh, you're alive. <laughs> and he's like, what? I'm like, no, I, I just, you know, thought you'd be dead by now. I, Justin, we <laughs> like just, just to bust his, like I bust his yeah. balls fucking. And, yeah. and I think I might be one of the only people that does it. Uh, and I, yeah, just trying to be funny. Yeah. We drove, we drove through Wichita Falls a few months ago at some point. And as soon as we parked and pulled up to the gym, John's like, all right, get your mask on. We're going to go in with our, our little <laughs> yeah. like COVID mask on. Are you ready? And he, he beat us to the punch, but Like uh, I pulled, I was in a truck and a trailer, and I just pulled it and like blocked the whole front of his building. And he fucking came running out and was so he's like fuck it, like yelling at me. I'm like I can't, I I can't drive a trailer, you know, just fucking with him. Uh, Dude, he uh, so salty, and uh, I just talk shit to him, which I think is funny. But yeah, so when you were working for him, and then you started the '70s big deal, and then shit, you came to the first CrossFit football seminar. Yeah, and rolled my ankle. (laughs) Yeah, we were just doing some high knee stuff, some real basic. And he's a college football player, good athlete, explosive dude. All of a sudden starts doing it. I think the problem was you stayed at Brian McKenzie's house. And uh, he got me uh, all loose. Well, no. Uh, He's just a huge pussy. And um, (laughs) his fucking, you slept in his bed of mediocrity. So you came out and then actually rolled your ankle, which I told you, I was like, stay away from McKenzie. I mean, Injuries, med- uh, mediocrity, and just all around shittiness just fucking prevails. That just dude. to clarify, it wasn't just high knees. It was what are the what are things that when you uh, skip vertically really high, uh, the power A's or pa- yeah, like, like uh, power skips. Yeah, so I was doing a power skip, and I I had a decent vertical for being like a white dude that was dude, very you, fast. Dude, you could fucking jump, but I mean, I, I jumped. You really used to high. be able to jump. I was just like, oh yeah, and then uh, came down on my ankle and. Uh, one of the benefits of this situation is I don't have that ankle to worry about anymore. I just have to balance on fake ones now. Well, but get rid of that fucking ankle. But I mean, <laughs> dude, you—I mean, um, real good athlete, like real explosive, real twitchy. Uh, I and I remember watching him squat, and you know the whole rip squat. And I remember thinking, like, fuck, if we could just get this dude to squat better, he would probably be way more fucking <laughs> explosive. I, I moved the high bar when I left his gym, and then I was. I was preparing for the military, so I kind of maintained my body weight and just tried to like see how high I could get my strength while doing some conditioning and sprinting what, and shit. Uh, but uh, uh, how did you pivot? I mean, you were doing seventies big, you were working for Rip, and then you started yeah. doing a bunch of online. I mean, really, one of those like, I mean, geez, I, like when I think back about it, like CrossFit football seventies big. I mean, like there's re- there really wasn't anybody else that was actually putting out some decent information. Well, I appreciate and, uh, that. How did you kind of pivot and decide? Hey, I'm going to go into the military and do what you're doing now. Or doing what you did then? Well, Rip and I left without like being cordial. I'm I, right. I met my uh, who I became. I met my wife, and then we are divorced now. But th- I met her during that time, and she lived somewhere else because she was in the Air Force. And uh, so I was kind of like I was gonna leave, and things were kind of getting weird. 
And uh, I let him know that I was going to be leaving like in, let's say, June or something like that. And then um, we then he was like, well, why don't you just leave now? And I was like, all right. So that's kind of like how that started. But I had already started 70s big the previous fall and started doing seminars. And I don't know if that was irritating to him or whatever, but I was trying to do it in a way that was different than what he was offering. And uh, and then obviously I had like the whole education plus, I don't know if you'd say entertainment, but like nonsense along the way, because that's how I teach. Even in the military when I teach things, it's just being nonsensical and to try and garner that male attention <laughs> to listen to me. <laughs> Uh, but the pivot came with, you know, I started working with a lot of special operations guys, and I always had in the back of my mind like that I was considering something in the military. And actually, when I left my grad school program before I found uh, before I got to Rips Gym, I was like contracted to go to OCS for the Marine Corps, mm. and uh, then I uh, quit that after quitting grad school. So just quitting a bunch of stuff <laughs> before I went to Rips, and uh, and then you so so you quit everything and then you ran off to Wichita Falls. Yeah. Uh, the, the, hold on, the paradise of Wichita Falls, mind uh, you. Yeah, I mean, for those I've lived of you in a lot of never... shitty places. <laughs> the place you're like, that... you're, you're like, I basically lived. Um, so what Justin was talking about earlier, we had this uh, uh, deal in the military that they had this like genius idea that we were going to basically take like a like a chessboard model and we were going to build these little castles out of like rock. They would just drop these rocks in the middle and then they'd build like a little outpost. And then they'd stick these dudes out there as like castles. So that's what he was talking about, which is probably nicer than Wichita Falls. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> the, the, the company was better. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I was working with a bunch of special operations guys. And then uh, I started looking into jobs where I could get immediately into, into some sort of soft element. And early on, I was looking at pararescue. But I was looking because I had a degree, so I was looking at like officer options because I knew from being with my ex-wife, she was an officer, and there was like just a difference there. But what eventually I learned that with, especially in soft, it is it's very blatant. But the, like the officers are like managers of personnel in a sense, but they're we're more so managing the bureaucratic bullshit from the top down to their guys. So that's not like a cool job from my perspective. And so I wanted to be the dude to do it. And Pararescue didn't really offer that. And some jobs, they require you to spend some time in the regular military before you go to SOF. And uh, so that's how I tur I got turned on to the 18 X-Ray contract, which is the 18 series is Army Special Forces. And so you go to basic and like airborne school, and then you go to Fort Bragg and you have a shoot, you have a, like a slot to go to selection. And if you make it, then you go into the Q course. So that's the route I chose. And I just wanted to be uh, a dude and uh that challenge and that i was really missing that team thing like because i played a one year of really shitty college football and i really loved that whole team environment and i wanted that which you definitely get in sf and then i wanted to uh i basically be in combat and that was cool until it wasn't <laughs> so, uh but that's how i got into it and then so i left in uh, february of 13 and then uh, it took three whole years to become a Green Beret. And I didn't even fucking recycle anything. It's just that there's nine months of a medical training we do in addition to the normal Q course as, as medics. And then the Q course itself was like 18 months because there's like six months of language at the end of it. Do like small unit tactics, SEER. There's a whole like culmination exercise of Robin Sage. And you do your MOS training or your job training in there too. It's like four months of just that. So, um, yeah, it was, was kind of like doing – I don't know, an advanced degree for 
definitely medical stuff because my scope of practice is, was like a physician's assistant plus some surgery, like trauma surgery, like amputations, fasciotomies, escherotomies, uh, wound debridement, and then running anesthesia and like veterinary stuff. So it's like this broad jack of all trades approach to medicine, but we're like experts in trauma medicine. And then as a Green Beret, like once you show up, then the real work begins because you're a team guy in the sense that you do anything that anybody would do on the team. So you, you cultivate your skills of shoot, move, medicate, communicate, or communicate and medicate. So my job is to teach the medicating aspect. And then I was also uh, got to the point where I was responsible for our physical training regime for our, the teams. And then I'd kind of help with other people, help other people with their mechanics and stuff like that. But we have actually a really good strength and conditioning program. Uh, thank fuck because like, <laughs> they, they kind of like just naturally got to the point of having some, they would pull from, you know, like NCAA style strength coaches, but then they would convert over at least in our facility. They were very good at like applying a good strength and conditioning approach, essentially like a power athlete approach to, um, what our job is. And then, so I would like take that and cultivate it, but I'd use the coaches quite a lot. So, but that was the, the scope of my job. And, but we're, you know, the things that I wasn't good at, I would work on either at work or at home. So like I would do dry firing drills and got to be like a very good, especially a pistol shot. And then I shot and killed one dude on my first plan. It was our only rifle kill on that trip. But, uh, nice. so it, it paid off, I guess when I hunted a guy, but, um, other than that, uh, it's just like putting all the work in to prepare for combat. And I had almost a year to prepare for the first trip. And then, uh, in seven, so in September of 17 deployed to Afghanistan in the area where the Pakistan and Afghan border meet. And that's where ISIS K it's an offshoot of ISIS was, uh, just, uh, doing ISIS things like, uh, literally terrorizing villages. And like, they would take all the village elders and like put them on a strand of debt cord and just like blow them up and shit and make video, like make propaganda videos. And, uh, so these areas were being taken by ISIS, which were like enacting like a really severe Sharia law. Even the Taliban doesn't like ISIS. So like the Taliban wouldn't yeah, attack but the, us. But none of those people like each other. That's uh, that's, you know, yes, because it's like, or if you wait a few years, then they'll be on different sides because they're just like, they're just trying to survive because there's so much fucking war there. But yeah, so uh, that deployment was uh, rowdy. I was living in an outpost, doing a lot of combat things. Uh, daytime combat like mostly valley clearance stuff which is not the normal sf mission of going in and doing raids at night somewhere uh so a lot of like airstrikes i've been i've had some close encounters uh not in a house but like 60 meter i'm pinned down by a machine gun that's like 60 meters away i've been shot at by narrowly missed by multiple rpgs and and sniper contact so i got like the full gamut of like the soviet weapon uh <laughs> uh firefight like the variety of the soviet weapons were i was engaged with and then uh then had 11 months in between my deployments um and then one month into my second deployment basically into the same ao about 10 to 20 kilometers away at a different outpost i we were on mission within a mile of the outpost and i stepped on an ied that's kind of the quick everything from justin joining the military to justin getting blown up <laughs> so Oh shit! Dude. It was, uh, but yeah, with 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 war stuff and with respect to strength and conditioning, like I learned a lot. Like by you know we live we live in Colorado for my unit. I'm intense. I was intense special forces group, 
And uh, so we train a lot in, in terrain that is similar to Afghanistan. Uh, and so I remember I've, I have pictures of me, like, you know, shirtless pictures and stuff right as I was deploying. And I was like, dude, my legs were like big. And then my arms weren't as big as they are now because I was just in mountain shape and like, in like shooting shape of just the only thing I'm moving around. I would still train and lift and everything, but I'm like moving that gun around and like wearing heavy ass kit or rock all the time. And, uh, the farthest I've ever run was probably 200, maybe 250 meters across an open ground, like fucking scared of shit because it was just very open and everything. But other than that, it's like you walk around and then it might be like those short sprints. So it's like, whether it's like seventies big or power athlete, like, we we kind of come to these summaries of this is strength and conditioning applied to the activity that you're preparing for like the and that seems to be your guys's thing that you prepare power athletes for and i think it's a great uh training modality and you add in i would have a sprint every week but the some of the things i learned from that were first off uh once your bout of effort is over the work is not over so like i would have us sprint like if we were on our last couple reps of 400 meters, for example, I would have us then, okay, now you have to run like a 200 meter, but it can be a jogging pace after your 400. Or sometimes I'd have us take a knee because then you have to recover while taking a knee and instead of just walking and, you know, put your hands on your head and like suck the air in as much as you can. But like get down behind cover basically, maybe have to put a tourniquet on or d do something that is a part of our job and then get up and jog another 200 while your substrates are still kind of tapped out. So I use a lot of like lactate threshold type sprints where you run like six to 800 meters at like a, a mot like a maybe 75, 80% pace. So something like we would run for something a little so between like seven and eight minute mile pace. And then after that, then we would have like a 15 to 20 second rest and then do like a hill sprint and then maybe have to like cognitively do something so that was one thing i learned was that like the work doesn't end after your period of your interval and your workout is over so um, i would always try and extend out the work whether it's like adding carries or sled pushes or drags or something after like an intense thing and then the other thing is that uh like not getting hurt is really important <laughs> and that's from just remembering our conversations before john i remember like that's obviously you had time where you were hurt in your career and uh like if you if you're hurt then you can't fucking do the thing. So keeping guys healthy, but also setting guys up to like be prepared for that constant load of kit and ruck that we are in combat. Because I w not even wearing a ruck on my last mission on my first deployment, I was 300 pounds and I weighed like 210. So just with my aid bag, grenades, ammo, food, water, and shit, it was like 90 pounds, and that was just what I was cruising around with to run around for one day to assault like 50 compounds or whatever. So yeah, but the training, the training aspect of it was interesting and it helped me cultivate how like you can do some specificity based stuff, but it's still like general, you're still doing like, you know, a lot of muscle, a lot of joints moving, a lot of like uh, metabolic demand and, uh, and then trying to set people up for success. Cause you gotta be strong to like maintain that shit. The guys that weren't strong or smaller, you could tell, like if we we're on multi-day missions that if they were up all night, then, you know, it's just like anything. If you're running at 80% of your fucking max 1RM capacity, hypothetically, and I'm running at my like 50% because I'm stronger or like a little bigger, like they're just a little bit more fatigued and who knows how that could play out in like a worst case scenario. But that's a, that's a quick rundown of like, uh, 
Jesus. little bit of the experience, a little bit of the strength and conditioning aspect of it. No, I remember uh, the first time when I got contracted by NSW to come in, uh, they were using more like a triathlon model, you know, long swim, yeah. you know, uh, long bike ride, long run, big bench press steel. And I asked them, I'm like, do you guys ever do anything uh, in your mission that looks similar to this? And they were like, not really. We like hike with like 90 pounds a kid on uh, for like five clicks. We drop that stuff. We sprint in, we run in, we do what we're going to do. And then we run out and then we got to walk out. And I'm like, why don't you train more similar to what you're doing there? And are you strong enough to be able to survive over time? Yeah. So that really changed my model, especially when I went and worked with those guys where I'm like, dude, this seems crazy. I mean, like in football, we train specific for the energy demands and the time and all the other you know yeah. pieces of this. And it just feels like uh, you guys are getting a lot of overuse injuries and you guys are getting broken because you're just putting so much mileage in under this like endurance athlete mentality when you guys are more similar on that power athlete side. Yeah. So, One thing you would be interesting is that with our Thor program, maybe they just changed it, but it used to yeah, be called Thor. Thor. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of uh, like agility drills in it. And so that I incorporated that more when I got there because like part of the assessment for SOCOM, at least with Army Special Forces, is to do a 510-5 shuttle in there. Sure. There's like a, there's like broad jump and then there's a, what is it, the 300 meter shuttle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah the uh, um, um, 650s. Yeah, the, yeah, the conditioning. The yeah, one they basically the just stole all that from uh, yep. um, like a coach's training manual in college football. Yeah. So they're going to run short shuttle, long shuttle, broad jump, vertical jump, and then three hundred meter shuttles. Yeah, and there's a deadlift. There's some lifting in there, like a, I think a deadlift. I don't know. If, I don't think they press, but I think they bent the like a squat bench dead and a weighted pull up. I think are some of the lifts. Yeah. Um. Also, I had the second best five ten five shuttle in the entire group. And, uh, well, fuck, I, I hope like, so. You were a pretty good athlete, dude. Most of the guys that we've ran all, into. Though. Well, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. Like, I think everybody has this idea that, uh, you know, the guys in this, you know, SOCOM soft deal are these, like, uber athletes. And I, I tell them, like, some of the, and this isn't generally true, but I've run, I've encountered some really shitty athletes in there. No, for but sure. what was unique about these guys was their ability to suffer and to be able to, to last longer than anybody. So I'm like, at the end of the day, like, you're not going to roll out of that because you're not a good athlete. You're going to roll out because you can't suffer longer than the next guy. Right. And the, but and to piggyback on your point, there are, there are shit bags in like any place. Like uh, probably any unit might have them. Uh, they can be on any team. And so, but also in addition to that, there's just so much shit to do as a Green Beret that if you're going to try and have a family on top of that, like I, I didn't have a family, you know. I, uh, so I, I would lift in my afternoon or when I got home at night, I would be lifting in the dark, like <laughs> well, I had lights on in the garage, but lifting at nighttime. Sounds and, like, like a practicing. song lifting yeah. in the dark. <laughs> yeah. It's my new record. Uh, <laughs> that I'm, I'm releasing next. Yeah. Month. He's like, I'm, I'm producing this. It's real weird. <laughs> yeah. But I'd like lift, uh, do dry firing and practice Pashto in my free time. And they're like, so that's, if you're going to be like a, a professional, you have to like you know, and guys don't always know the best thing to eat. And then over time, if they do combat deployments, they're getting like emotional health issues, trauma, exposure, and TBI, which, and then they're dipping and drinking is the society or like the social method of dealing with everything. So, uh, but all that being said, sometimes you have just some like not fit dudes. And then you have dudes that are wildly like horrible athletes. Like I was, I had us do like a simple backpedal drill as like the first like the second part of our warm up and with agilities and one of my uh straight up distance uh runner type teammates 
he took you <laughs> he took one step backwards and like rolled his ankle like immediately and i was just, it was comical but i was like oh god like that's that's yeah. like that's a lot because i like you know having agility is really important when you're in kit on unstable mountains and shit like and getting shot at it's like <laughs> well, I was so, going to say the getting shot at part, like running in zigzags. But then the problem is, is that those you were talking about the Russian firearms, they probably don't shoot straight. I wouldn't. So be here if, if you run didn't. run in a dra- in a zigzag, you're probably going to get shot. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you I try mean, and dude, cartoon it, then you're just going to run into the projectile, dude. Uh, uh, some of the pictures of those AK-47s. Where like they're like stamped metal, and some dude in some like hut in the dirt is basically like knocking these things together. I'm like, there is no way those things are accurate. But they just if you see them, they're just shooting from the hip anyway. They also like to put uh, stickers on them, kind of like Call of Duty. Maybe that's the only time in the world I've seen sticker like other than the video game is like they would take MRE stickers. Like this is our partner force, not the bad guys. They would take like MRE stickers. It'd be like first strike bar, and they like put that on the magazine of their AK and stuff are like, why are they doing that? It's like, but they, uh, but yeah, if they did, I think if the, either the, the skill of the guys I was fighting, cause you know, they do go through their own like training and stuff, but they're still like, uh, whatever fighters that are just in rural Pakistan and Afghanistan that get put on the front lines to face a giant bearded set of dudes like that are going to drop air bombs on them. But, like, if they had better skill or better weapons, like, I don't know if I'd be here. Because, like, I literally one time I was running across a courtyard and I was carrying a saw, which is a light machine gun. Uh, so just for the, the, the strength and conditioning. You know, piece, they like, sell those it. now. They sell them to civilians. I mean, for, they're not for full real? auto. Yeah, you, you can get a light scar. It's like a 249. Uh, shoots 5.56. Semi-auto. Uh, they sell those now. Can you they're pretty get, expensive. Can, I saw them on a gun broker. Can you get a uh, linked ammo, like a, the 5.56 yeah. linked ammo? Yeah, no, it, yeah, it's, it, you can run it on a magazine, but also you can do a belt-fed version. Nice. So, I, yeah, the, yeah, the, the mag I wouldn't want because like, my I think my initial burst in one of the firefights was with the saw because I carried it for three days and I was like, I'm never fucking carrying that again because like my <laughs> job is to direct people, not to fucking be a machine gunner. But I, I my the first time I shot a weapon in combat was that weapon, but I the second day that a different rpg almost hit me uh i like had a 60 round burst from the kneeling so i remember thinking like oh this is probably like a cool picture like as i was doing it because i was like for like 60 rounds uh but what was i getting at there um i was carrying a saw did you set up your phone like so you could instagram it so that yeah i actually was like for the gram put the wet the waved a white flag (laughs) got a ring light and then set it up (laughs) uh there's actually com cam- combat cameramen that will go on mission just to do that. They, they, I don't even know if they carry a weapon, but they'll like be in a firefight, like trying to take pictures of you, which we didn't. Yeah, that sounds have, awful. But, yeah, uh, but the I bent down to pick, the drum kept falling off. It's a 200 round drum, and uh, it kept falling off all day, which is not cool or tactical. I would be like, oh god, and like have to pick it up. But I was sprinting and it fell off, and I bent down, and a, an RPG went like a foot over my head when I was bending down, and it hit our truck. And uh, it didn't kill anybody, but it, like, TBI'd, like, three of my teammates. And then the guy who was in the open 50-cal turret got hit by the blast. And so he, like, fell down into the truck and was, like, just out of it. And uh, when I ran back, because one of my buddies who actually – a different one that saved my life, helped save my life later. He was, like, full-autoing with his M4, and I came back. And he was like, that dude is fucked up, man. And I, like, looked at the 50-cal, and it was up in the air. And and I'm a medic, so I, like, opened the door, and he was just, like, slumped over. And I was like, oh, no, like – this dude's dead and i turned him and he 
was alive. And I was like, oh, what's up, man? I was like, hey, it's Justin. I'm going to take care of you. And I was like trying to make jokes to him, like to keep him awake and stuff. But uh, the point being is that uh, I think I was talking about an RPG almost hitting me and something about maybe like the physical demand of that. But If they uh, had better weapons. Oh, yes. They, you. Yeah, you wouldn't have been there. Yeah. So near near misses, but uh, and then obviously a near miss <laughs> with the bomb on the ground. But um, yeah, it's weird. War is fucking weird. It's really it's like you don't really think it's intense as it's happening. From a like a from our job perspective, it's like I have shit to do when things pop off. So like, and I and I liked when things would pop off because like, oh, we know where they're at now. They're gonna die type thing, and uh, and I liked that. I was pretty aggressive. Uh, with my tactics and I liked maneuvering and like leading elements into like tactically maneuvering to, it's kind of like if I had to tie it into a sport, it's like whether lacrosse for like text or like football for you, John, or, you know, like when you, when you enjoy the strategy or the tactics of your game, like you have an overall strategy to how you're approaching it based on your personnel and you have like your tactics. It's, it's just like that, but in a, very dynamic environment and you like see what you it's like you see your playing field every time you like come over the next ridge and so you make a plan based on what you look at it's it's very interesting regarding all that until until something horrible happens <laughs> uh i appreciate the point you made earlier about being selfish um and being like hey uh you know and because I, I took the same approach playing the nfl yeah. i didn't have a family i didn't get married because i knew it was extremely selfish and i was always amazed that guys would have like marriage kids and keep it all together and do this when i'm like man I, i'm just trying to do the best i can at this piece right. i can't imagine adding all these other elements i mean you go on deployment and you got a wife and kids to take care of and you know mortgages to pay and bills and that i can't imagine that stress especially when you're over there yeah trying, it takes, trying to do that it takes like a strong spouse to support anybody and, and that goes for other genders too like if uh someone has a stressful job like a doctor where people are dying all the time it's like similar without the same danger but it takes a strong spouse to support a dude probably the same thing for especially with the nfl because like I, I i see a lot of similarities between like the nfl and the army about you know when we think about head injury and the historical look at like how both organizations have looked at head injury so I always think that it's interesting. Cause Did the Army just deny it too? I mean, because the NFL, when I came in the NFL, they told me the only way you know you got a concussion is if you got knocked unconscious. And then 10 years later, they were like, hey, we, you know, we, we need you to talk about concussions. I'm like, right. yeah, no, I've, I've never been knocked out. And they're like, well, we've changed that. Yeah. Now, anytime you hit your head and you feel disoriented, and uh, you hear any like noises, your eyes go cross-eyed, that's a concussion. And the lady looked at me and she's like, how many concussions have you had? I'm like, 70,000? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. it was... Uh, That's insane. Yeah. I mean, dude, uh, I, and I remember clear as day, they're like, you'll know you've had a concussion when you get knocked unconscious. Mm -hmm. But back before, two, back before like 2010, like if you got a Purple Heart for a TBI and you like in the infantry, like the dudes in the infantry were like, fuck you. Like <laughs> that doesn't... That's not a real injury. But then those are the same people that are not going to know their kids' names at 50 uh but yeah they it was uh it i think they learned a lot through the first part of the war and then by the time like i got around to it i had a pretty good and as a medic i had a pretty good awareness of tbi and what to look for and i rehab guys back from them but i mean i still there are some of the friends that like watched me step on that thing like they're they still have like pretty overt symptoms that are you know they're they're jacked up and we're just we're, we're just exposed to blast all the time and it's just like uh 
you're exposed to like that physical contact. So I wonder, I, I assume those micro traumas are the same. And I, I think the way that I've like looked at all this and researched it all is that they present the same and like the same problems. So, uh, and then regarding like how much, cause certain guys that don't have a long, a long career in the NFL don't have the same financial situation as someone who might've been in like, you know, five plus years. What's the average time in NFL, like less than three yeah, type thing? Yeah, they, I mean, the average is three, a little over three years, but that's kind of misleading. Uh, it's probably maybe similar to you guys in, in that if you can do the job, you end up doing it for 10 years. I mean, think about Tom Brady's got like 20 years in. How, yeah. many, how many people have to show up, get a hot cup of coffee, and then get kicked out the door the very first day to even keep that average with a dude like Tom Brady? So what's fascinating in the NFL is uh, most of the – I think, Jesus is like – seven or eight years ago, it was like 40,000 guys had played in the NFL, less than 1,000 had played longer than uh, four years. Damn. So it, it's just a really interesting yeah. thing where if you can play it from day one, you play for a long time, barring injury or something crazy happening. Yeah. If you can't play, you're not going to fucking be there very long. So that's yeah. what we used to say to the NFL men, uh, not for long. Yeah. It means get the fuck Maybe out Maybe this here. is my uh, bias or something, but I almost feel like the NFL like and the Army sort of treat us differently when we're done with it too. <laughs> oh yeah that you mean the uh basically go fuck yourself get out of here and uh yeah. i hope you die a uh you know a lonely death yeah i mean i had like the secretary of the army couldn't even promote me in a way that would increase my compensation you know like so uh so i so i work with this uh the special forces foundation it's a charity and the guy that runs his name's gary garza he was a green beret for he's been in like over 25 years or something but he's about to get out and he runs it but he has solidified some deals with various NFL teams and stuff to kind of share networks on uh, TBI providers and stuff like that. But so he's doing some essentially like little, sometimes the teams will do like these leadership things. And so the green berets, they have some sort of linking up where the green berets and NFL players like hang out and teach each other stuff. And uh, so just from talking to him and like getting exposed to that, it, there's, there is a lot of similarity. And I feel like I could build rapport immediately by just making a joke. Like, you know, the one, the one thing between the both of us is that they're not going to give a shit about us once we're done with this job. So in the Dude, meantime, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, if there's any way for, uh, for you to reach out to them, I would love to come talk to those guys. Cause I think yeah. I have a, not only a ton of experience on the NFL side, but also working as a contractor. I mean, we do, we were in contracting for two years to go implement power out these <laughs> systems with the entire 18th airborne Corps. Nice. So, which was for the big army, which of course, you know, that program kind of died because anything good gets killed off by the big army. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised but, that they, there was even the, the taking the chance to do something with that. Dude, Cause it's very rare to get like contracting jobs that are cool that are actually like useful for the regular army. Yeah. No, what they were, um, you know, uh, like the injury rate was so high. Uh, and those guys were like so many dudes were on profile that the surgeons corps actually brought us in to try to help them put in training systems to reduce injury, to, to make these guys more wow. deployable. And so we were in a, I mean, we taught what, like seven, eight, nine seminars for them and for yeah, a couple of years yeah, for a couple of years and then went into a contracting piece and they wanted us to go and implement, uh, you know, across the 18th airborne Corps. So, um, it was a really interesting glimpse on the side of big army cause we'd always dealt on the SOCOM soft side. Yeah. You know, where guys have budgets, things are happening really quick. You know, you're working with the best and they want the best. Where's the big army? And we had so many random M, uh, uh, MOSs where these guys would come in and I'd be like, what's your deal? He's like, uh, frontline generator mechanic. 
And when we went to do this, yeah. I was like, hey, man, give me the most random stuff. Like, give me, like, everybody. I, I just don't want a sample of one. I want a sample of everything and see if it works. And so yeah. it was real positive, and it would have worked really well, which meant that they couldn't go take it to contracting because I think if something works too well, then they're not going to mm. do it. Yeah. But uh, in, in terms of working with the NFL players and Green Berets, man, if there's some way to connect, I would love to do Absolutely. that. Yeah, Gary I'm, is, uh, like, he's he's, like, an awesome Green Beret. So, like, if there is... I give him contacts all the time because I kind of like I'm almost like a pilot study for finding new programs for our found for the foundation. So I don't necessarily work for them, but I like feed them things. And he, uh, if I give him something, he'll figure a fucking way out to like uh, to make it work or to like work together and to expand both entities. Like because that was his job as like a human a human intelligence guy is like you immediately assess someone's like capabilities, limitations, and desires. And so if he's like oh, this is something that can help us, it can help them. And he like he figures it out and makes it happen. But he would love to work with you. Uh, I know that there's definitely the um, – there's uh, there's either ideas that exist or ideas that don't exist to create something new. Uh, but, yeah, he's already – he's done a couple of them. COVID, like, put a damper on all of it, but now it's starting to kind of resurrect. And I know that – I think it was the Packers and the Cowboys so far he's, that he's worked with. But uh, – and also uh, they have – I don't know if Sornex is involved. I don't think it was, but like I know one of the things was in South Carolina, which is where their home base is. But, but yeah, there's a there's definitely if if there's a way to to work together and it be fun for everybody and be effective for whoever it's being done for, then you and Gary, I think, would definitely uh, flourish with that. Well, there's um, there's a lot of interesting stuff, and I think um, if at least when I talk to other NFL players or I talk to young guys, whatnot. If you're waiting to your first TBI to start kind of putting things in play, you're way behind the fucking curve. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things like, uh, you know, creatine is a neuroprotectant, um, you know, uh, avoiding alcohol and dose, you know, high amounts of sugar post brain injury because it crystallizes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always thought that the, it was funny that the one thing you don't give on when somebody has a traumatic brain injury is like high doses of carbohydrates. And then, yeah. uh, but yet you look at every NFL game and they're over there just shuttling Gatorade to us, which I always thought was kind of funny and ironic, yeah. but like that piece, uh, not drinking alcohol because that tends to crystallize realizing the time in between, uh, you know, big hits, looking micronutrient deficiencies, what's going mm-hmm. on in the gut food. I mean, there's a million different ways to kind of skin it. And, yeah. um, I mean, it's kind of like, those are the things that I did. And I think that's why I might not have the same problems today as some of my other teammates. Ah, so to clarify, you were doing, you found some of those things during your career and was, were doing them as kind of like a preventative thing. Uh, just not even knowing that that's what was preventing okay, gotcha. it. But, um, I mean, I can't say I didn't drink alcohol after hitting my head in the wall on a Sunday, <laughs> yeah. uh, but like, uh, taking creatine, like I think I'm one of the longest continuous creatine users on the planet. I started when I was 14. So I got 30 years of taking creatine and now the research is coming out about ATP and neuroprotectants in this. And I'm like, ah, I mean, actually uh, I I was getting like uh, micronutrient testing and all that blood work done my entire NFL career and trying to, you know, maximize. And if there was a problem, not necessarily leaving those, you know, situations just to flourish. I, you learned about that creatine stuff. I, I think it, I don't know if it was after my first deployment, but I was implementing it like I told my team about I gave them like a a lesson on it and what they could be taking for their body weight and everything and uh, kind of dispelling you know also wanting to try it out at home so we knew what their water retention or not would be with it so that they would be able to 
if they needed to modify but like you know two and a half grams for like a smaller dude, dude is not is not going to do anything and five grams really won't either and all that bullshit where they were talking about hamstring poles and and you know dehydration everything i think was total red herring and bullshit yeah i mean never had any probably, of those issues i mean like I, obviously electrolytes would play a huge role in that and if you're not even if you're in a or hot, salt or yep. or like a good salt intake i mean the, yep. the the fact that you know they recommend like a pinch of salt a day is fucking travesty mm-hmm. and then they wonder i mean if uh you know and i'm sure there are people that disagree but uh what was that book the salt fix yeah oh my god like uh you know it's it's pretty amazing when you start realizing that yeah. uh, a lot of the recommendations and, and then you think about how hot it is in afghanistan and what you guys are doing in terms of that like it's got to be so uh just debilitating of a, like you know salt like your lights and dehydration mm-hmm. and you know overheating and I just nuts. talked with uh, Rob Wolf, and he has that new company with his yep. electrolyte uh, product, and I'm an ambassador for it. But I, I was picking his brain. I interviewed him for my podcast. I was picking his brain about you know different elements of <laughs> that's funny, <laughs> different aspects of the that good one. That's a pun uh, of uh, like sodium intake and everything. So I I have a different appreciation for that now than. I I, ha- I was really good with electrolytes. Like I, I essentially like saved people's performance in like the Baton Death March, for example, uh, which I did in like 17, I think. But I mean, there was a dude who was going to be doing the kick and chicken and I kind of gave him an electrolyte regime. I was like, you should, you need to alternate this. Did, and, did you do that in the Philippines? They actually did it. Oh, no, sorry. So there's a Baton Death March that's in New Mexico. Oh, Jesus. So the, the American recreation, but it's like oh, a, God. It's it's like a marathon. Yeah, it's a marathon. Not humid, thank fuck, but uh, but there's like you know at one point eight miles of like incline, and then on mile twenty one or something, there's like ankle deep sand for a mile. So it's like really giant pain in the ass. I was like, why am I doing this? Like I've already done shit like this because I had to. Like why are we choosing to do this as a team? <laughs> like, but uh, yeah, that was hard. And but you learn over time, like especially in a kit or under load, how that hydration, how those hydration demands are different than. Uh, normal working out and obviously practicing those things is, are important but uh, tying it back to the creatine like that was something that I was excited about because I was like oh you're going to have this fucking this creatine is going to be stored in the brain and then once there's an injury and that blood glucose doesn't have the uptake it is supposed to because of the injury that that insult is preventing substrates from operating that brain so the creatine's providing so yeah that was I wonder how like my brain injuries I don't really have overt symptoms and I wonder like my lifestyle factors and also maybe the creatine uh, and then my lifestyle factors afterwards because that's a huge thing too. Do you do you uh, have a sauna, John? Uh, yeah, dude. I have an infrared sauna. I don't nice. – I mean it's so hot here in Texas I'm not getting in in, in, the, in the summer because we like live in a sauna. But yeah. uh, there was – outside. Uh, man, there was um, just a lot of interesting observations that I made when I was playing that uh, – and this is purely speculative. This is just observation. Yeah. Um, the guys that tended to take the most amount of painkillers are the guys that seem mm-hmm. to have the most amount of problems. Yeah. And I remember I talked to Peter Atia about this, and I was like, you know, do you think that there are issues with the opiates and maybe like, uh, you know, I don't know, eating holes in the blood-brain barrier or something weird? And he was like, or maybe they're just the people that couldn't, that weren't genetically designed to handle that load needed to take something, whereas... I didn't really take that stuff because it just never bothered me the same way. Hmm. So, I mean, I, that's I used to watch guys pop, yeah, that's breath, an interesting, uh, like pop them like breath mints. Yeah, yeah. Because at the very least, it's killing the prefrontal cortex's ability to have REM sleep. And so if you're just on chronic narcs, then you're not sleeping in, you know, deep sleep first half of the night, REM sleep second half of the night, and they kind of 
uh, emphasize different hormone hormones for like recovery from training. So at the very least, they're missing out on like a vital component of neural and you know body recovery because I think testosterone is heavily correlated with like the REM sleep portion and yeah. more growth hormone for deep sleep. So yeah, that that's so the the after effect is interesting, but but that's interesting thinking about it in terms of almost like uh, your selection based system for how people go through you know like the the Russian feeder system uh, feeder system where they're like the ki- they test the kids and these kids with the broad jump go to this one and so it's kind of interesting like because you're in I don't know what you call it but like like you're saying there's only so many there's a certain fraction of the guys in the NFL or even like green braze at like selection or something that can make it through whatever the physical enduring you have to comp- you know whatever you have to do to do that job and and it like the people that can't handle it are the ones that aren't going to last as long so that's an interesting way of thinking of like yeah there's definitely like some sort of genetic predisposition for hardiness physically you know and and yeah. being able to adapt but also lifestyle would definitely influence that. Dude, like if you're uh, you're doing all your eating and and creatine and micronutrients, that probably helped you not need that shit. In the well, same the way. Uh, the interesting one is um, I, I remember seeing guys like asking for tortol shots and taking painkillers on like the first or second day of, of training camp, and we're there like four or five weeks. And yeah, I would see that shit, and I, like that would be like that would just put me up a notch. So like for some reason, when I see other people like struggling or suffering and I know this is sick. Like that's like my superpower. I'm like, oh, I'm going to feed off of your misery. I'm like the dementor. I'm going to suck that out of you. <laughs> and when I saw guys like in there, like, Hey, I'm like this. I'm like, Oh fuck. We're just going to go harder on these guys. And, yeah. um, you know, but also there was just for me and, and I don't know, I, we had a guy named Dr. Adam Ants who did my shoulder surgery, um, on the podcast. And he made an interesting point that kids that have some form of like pretty significant injury earlier in their lives tend to develop a higher pain threshold as they get older. Hmm. So, um, I mean, uh, like, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, like as kids, we, you know, we got fucked up and we did a bunch of stupid stuff and, and for even in the NFL, like, uh, you know, dislocate a finger, set it yourself. Um, you know, when I was 10 years old, I got a cavity and I remember telling the doc, I'm like, just drill it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and he's like, well, I'm like, I want to see what it feels like. So he didn't put Novocaine. He just drilled the cavity. Why would he listen to you? <laughs> right. 10 years old. Like my mom was there. My mom's like, let him do it. Let's, let's see how it feels. So the doctor drilled the cavity, filled it. And I was like, that wasn't that bad. It's the only cavity I've ever had in my entire life. Sent a message the rest and, of your well, teeth. Well, yeah, not to be pussies. But I remember <laughs> my mom to this day, she's like, you were 10 years old. And like that, that guy drilled your tooth and you didn't even flinch. That makes me think of like a like an action movie you're like just fucking do it but you're yeah. 10 you're, it's funny because you're 10 you're like a little and, kid like just do yeah. it <laughs> and then my mom and and you know my mom was like good teach him a lesson and uh, she's like you didn't flinch and she and that was the only cavity i've ever had i'd like haven't gone a day without brushing twice and flossing and mouthwashing whatever and i was like i'll never have a cavity again <laughs> question for both y'all what's in the nfl or the army like what's the Guys just got a request. Hey, I'm feeling this. Can I get the the painkillers? Like, what is the the process to get given these? Uh, well, uh, for us, um, and it's since changed. This is old school. They would uh, walk. I mean, as soon as I say old school, I hear Zach Evanesh in my head. Uh, as they were like, <laughs> we were sitting on the planes. The doctors or the trainers used to walk by, and they used to keep them in white plastic box or like uh, white paper boxes, and they would just kind of go by and they would shake them. We used to call them rattlers. Like. 
and guys would just like if you heard the shake and you wanted them you would just take the box and if not you just keep going and i used to let the box go like peanuts for a stewardess yeah they used to do that but now um that's jeremy nuts. newberry and uh someone like who's one of my teammates he um i think he took too many of them but he ended up, I think he needed like a liver or a kidney transplant, and uh, he started a lawsuit, and I think they have since kind of controlled that a little bit. I mean, they used to hand them out like breath mints and then Jesus. and beers. So they used to give you beers when you get on. And I'm like, okay, so we're on a plane, you're giving us beers and painkillers, and then you're expecting us to get off the plane and drive home? This, this is a bad fucking recipe. That, and it's just like chronic narc use is just, just from a medical standpoint, uh, because you know the practical aspect of what you're just explaining, like they just like fuck everything up. And and like for me, if I won't, like I did, I had a surgery last July on one of my amputations, and I just denied uh, narcs afterwards. And I I am a medical cannabis user, so that uh, helped quite a bit post surgery. But um, yeah, then I won't take narcotics more than like five days. And like my girlfriend's a doctor, so like she won't prescribe them longer than that. Um, yeah. They're just. They're just ne- they're not they're not they're not supposed to be on them chronically. It's like they're well, so they, shitty. They destroy the stomach. Yeah, and, that I too. Mean, the, That's a good point. The, you know, the same pain receptors in the brain that are in the gut, and yep. there's this you know link between the you know the brain and the gut with these receptors, and like you're basically destroying the. It just like uh, so I, I had shoulder surgery, man. That would have been it was a year ago in January. So what are we at? Like a year and a half. And uh, I told them, I was like, hey, uh, I don't want any painkillers. Don't give me anything. So yeah. um, I had them do a nerve block and, nice. uh, you know, for three days. And they pulled it out. And I just was like, I'm good. Like, um, I'll yeah. never take that shit again. I don't want to be around it. Um, just the amount of lives and deaths and, you know, problems and suicides and, uh, you know, people taking that stuff and, you know, accidental death. It's just it's fucking yeah. amazing. And yet uh, marijuana is a schedule one. And I'm like... Yeah. So nobody's ever died of smoking marijuana, and I'm pretty sure some dudes have tried to basically smoke as much as they can. I mean, I, know uh, I have. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you know, Kyle Turley, uh, who I played with. Oh, I mean, gosh. he he got set or he got diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Okay. Yeah. And what's wild is we played next to each other, and I actually have more plays and more starts than he does. Yeah. And so, um, you know, he was on, you know, like the amount of drugs they were giving that dude. I remember him like coming over these pill boxes. And I'm like, you take that every day. He's like, I take this every couple of hours. Whoa. And uh, he, he got into a bad place, ditched it all, got into cannabis. And it's really basically made him, you know, I would never call him a normal human being. He's just <laughs> not a fucking drugged up, psychotic, crazy person anymore. He's just a, yeah. kind just of a... Like, you should run in the mill crazy person. Yeah, he's <laughs> just a normal run of the mill crazy person. And he manages <laughs> it really well with cannabis. And my deal is... Um, uh, you know, we, you know, you can go buy beer anywhere. You can go buy alcohol. You can, you know, go to go get all this stuff prescribed, but yet, you know, something that grows out of the ground is regulated like it is. And I'm yeah. not a cannabis user, but I have zero, I, I would much rather a doctor prescribe cannabis than opiates and painkillers. Yeah. Luckily I got a synthetic THC prescribed to me. And so that was kind of my gateway into having, cause I never had any type of, uh, mind altering substance other than like alcohol prior to getting hurt. Uh, Cause I got ketamine, a point of injury. That's why I clarify that ketamine is not your normal psychedelic, but it's, it's a dissociative and it's really fucking weird. But, uh, did, but wait, I, so, so, so you took ketamine? I, uh, yeah. Cause that's our analgesia. It's like our pain med for mm-hmm. on point of injury stuff as a soft medic. So I got hundred migs. I am, and then 50 IV. And then I was on ketamine for two months straight until 
May 7th. So from 5 March 2019 to May 7th, I was just on a drip of ketamine the entire fucking time. And it's really weird. Dude, uh, uh, I've told this story, but when I was in college at Berkeley, um, I used to work uh, security for underground illegal raves. And so that was the way we made money. I mean, dude, it was like this our giant scholarship guy checks. Just at a rave. Yeah, well, we, we were working security. So I worked with these other badass kind of like thuggish dudes in San Francisco. And we would yeah. work these illegal raves. And, uh, you know, the kids would take all this ecstasy. And then we came across a bunch of kids that were just stuck on the floor that couldn't move. Like their eyes were open and they were moving their eyes, but their bodies were stuck. And they're like, don't worry about them. They're in a K-hole. And I'm like, what's a yeah. K-hole? And they were like, oh, it's ketamine. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, well, it's an animal cat or horse tranquilizer that they yeah. somehow, like, comes in a liquid. They somehow crystallize it. Then they grind it up into powder, and these kids snort it. And it just fucking ninja blow darts them. And I'm like, yeah. that doesn't seem like a good time. And then at the end of the night, we would just have to, like, carry them outside and lay them in the, in the street or on yeah. the sidewalk, like railroad ties. Stack dose them. response, just with any drug, dose response relationship applies. But when you hit a threshold on that drug, it literally just kind of turns the activity the brain functions in a way that it's keeping the body and the brain alive but like as far as cognitively it just kind of turns it off because they did some studies i think they came out last year on uh sheep and they gave them like an asinine amount like a gram <laughs> equivalent for a human and uh they were just they're they're just like you know they're rocked and they're out and then uh there's not like anything going on during that time <laughs> so the, the i don't even know if the, you would have like a it's not the same type of like trip quote unquote as like a psychedelic experience like a tryptamine based psychedelic but it's like i don't even know if you'd have an experience i think you're just off when you're that far well, into it well yeah I mean, goobers. was that was happened to you when they were doing a ketamine drip you were just kind of off no it was uh, you build a tolerance when you're on those when you're on anything for a long time but uh, at point of injury i was uh once i got like the 150 migs is my first time i mean it was like i was in and out having a wild experience uh and then kind of like waking up during parts of it. But as far as being in the hospital, I would be on, sometimes I'd get a bolus of 50 migs. That'd be like the highest I'd get at one time. And that's rowdy. Uh, like that would, if we all did that now sober, we'd be like, <laughs> like just immediately kind of like a hurric slow hurricane around you. Really slow. It'd be like um, like the uh, the blow dart in uh, yeah. a fucking nerd, no, dart no, in your neck. No, do you remember when he looks and he's like, oh, seven darts too much. Oh, Ace Ventura. Ace Ventura. Yeah. I was thinking old oh, school, nice. but yeah. both awesome. Yeah, I thought it was old school too, where he's like, oh, you got a crazy, fucking dart man. in your neck. You're crazy. Man. And then he like passes out in the water and he's yeah. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah. Um, the, the way it feels is different because it's like changing your perception of everything. But yeah, so like no short term memory. Plus, I had the TBI. I mean, light and sound sensitive, uh, which was probably from the TBI, but the ketamine makes all that stuff weird. I remember like a doctor coming in, like, hey, Justin, I'm Dr. <laughs> and I was like, you, sir. You have got to be quiet. I was like, you cannot fucking do that. I was like, you have got. You need to whisper today. Uh, but the ketamine's weird as fuck, and uh, it's a, it's the, it's different than an arc though. So it doesn't have those same problems, and uh, it's much more preferable. And it was the only thing that could touch my pain, other than epidurals. I had three epidurals, or like um, uh, something like morphine or morphine. Narcs don't do much for me, and maybe because I, I had that predisposition to like not like them. Or, n or to know that they were shitty. Well, uh, there's genetics where, um, like, yeah. when, we, when, when I got my genetic stuff done, um, there's, I remember one of, like, the elements is, like, do opiates affect you? And there's yeah. certain people that have a genetic predisposition where they take them and they're fucking hooked. Other people that take them and they're like, eh, I'm good. Yeah. 
it always just felt it did take the edge off of my pain especially when i was having to wean off of the ketamine but they gave me methadone too which is mm. fucking dumb and i would i like taught other soft guys that were coming in getting shot or blown up or whatever to deny methadone and they would like thank me later because i had it took me like three months to get off that because uh, you only can do so Dude, much each week and it was just in in awful. san francisco and in berkeley they used to have methadone clinics Oof. and they would go and they would give them like a little cup it looks like a slurpee almost and they'd come out and uh you know slurp down their methadone and then just wander around like fucking the living dead yeah, yeah my buddy like a zombie yeah yeah like, my buddy owns a meatpacking plant in south boston and then it's right next to the methadone mile so there's a documentary so he, he grinds up those people and then puts them into the meat? I wouldn't put it past this guy. <laughs> but every They'd probably day, ask for it if they're on methadone. Oh, yeah. yeah like, and grind me. Like, he, he's, he's going to carry based off recent experiences, but, like, they take their shoes off and it'd be freaking, you know, 10, 15 yeah, below. Insane, and he'd dude. go and throw their shoes away and, like, hose, hose them down and they wouldn't wake up and just freeze outside. So, well, like, it, I mean, what's Jesus. crazy is they use methadone to wean people off of, like, heroin and everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. I think it's fucking worse. Uh, that's So I'll tell you what, you're going to like this. You know Duff McKagan, the bassist of Guns N' Roses? Yeah. Yeah. He came into the hospital when I was doing rehab and he's a very sweet guy, very, very nice and everything. But, uh, I just, we, we'd gotten a chat talking about, and I mentioned the methadone or something, and he, you know, was doing heroin in the eighties with Guns N' Roses. With everybody <laughs> so, else in Guns N' Roses yeah, and everybody like, in that scene. Yeah. He was like, I've been on heroin and I've been on methadone. He's like, and methadone fucking sucks. <laughs> like he was just like, <laughs> he, get, he was like the confirmation like, yeah, that one's, that one's a doozy. Circling back to the gut thing you said, uh, John, because yep. The narcs with the gut, the mu receptors in the gut and the brain and everything, the way that narcs are working are on the spinal cord. They're basically trying to stop a pain signal from going from the peripheral body, and they're trying to dampen that signal at the at the spinal cord to go to the brain, which, you know, obviously that doesn't sound like a good thing to keep doing for a long time and physiologically. But the gut thing is interesting because there's I think like ninety or ninety five percent of the neurons or the nerves in the gut are afferent, meaning they're going towards the brain. Yeah. And so the gut inflammation that you were alluding to earlier has a huge role on the brain. So anybody that did have any kind of contact sport or blast exposure or even just singular intense TBI, like the the gut is like obviously one of those things that sets the foundation for the inflammation in your body. And it's, it has a vital role in inflammation in the brain. So that like paying attention to that. And, you know, when I, when I first met you, I remember being at your apartment that you had in, I think, Balboa or something. And. Oh, you mean the loft? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you sh- you, we had, like, we basically had, like, a giant paleo meal. You had, like, a, you ate an impressive amount, what I recall. I remember we, two things from that night. We did I already have told some badass steaks. <laughs> you, we had a giant steak, and I remember you eating a lot of avocado, and then I remember you holding, you showed us some guns from your safe, and you had, a, I think, a Desert Eagle pistol, but your hands are fucking, they're way bigger than mine, and when you were holding the pistol, it looked like you were holding, like, a Glock. It was actually the two things uh, I remember from that day. <laughs> it, it it was by far the most obnoxious pistol, and I, I don't even own it anymore. It's so obnoxious. It was actually an HK Mark Twenty Three. Oh, yeah. damn! So yeah, it, it was a badass. I, I remember. Uh, I like God, I was in a gun store in Kansas City, and dude, this is uh, this is pretty awful. But uh, <laughs> I didn't live that far from a gun store, uh, and when I was in Kansas City, so on Monday after or like Mondays after work, we would just go to the gun store. And uh, they had like a private range downstairs and we would just go in and buy something to shoot. 
And so at like the end of the year, I just had all these guns and I was like, oh, fuck. And I, I would just buy random shit. Like we bought like a, a snub nose, uh, um, what was it? The Smith & Wesson 500. I mean, I shot like each round I think was, um, so it was 20 rounds, cost me 125 bucks. And, and I shot, I shot 20 rounds, went back up and sold it back to him. I was like, <laughs> fuck this thing. But yeah, yeah I, I had that Mark 23 and, uh, yeah, that thing was, uh, everybody bitched. It was so big, but man, I kind of dug it. It was fucking massive. Yeah. Was it a, how was the kick on it for you? You were able to uh, recoil management or yeah. recoil, excuse yeah. me, were you able to uh, manage the recoil? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, um, I don't get to do as much shooting. Uh, as I like, but I still do a bunch of dry firing. So I still shoot out of a pistol rig and dry fire at least one or nice. two nights a week. And then uh, I hunt here on our property. So I get a, I get some decent confirmed kills in the middle of the night nice. under thermal. And I got a badass, uh, <laughs> I got a badass sweet. like PBS 30 setup. You're pointing at the wall too. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I was just about here. to ask you if you could shoot on your property. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. yeah so, so those three deer I took here and then that, that big boar I shot. Um, all under, you know, I mean the, uh, the deer during the day, but obviously the boar and everything, I, I shoot the pigs at night with thermal, nice. but I do have a badass PBS 30 that I put on, uh, on one of my rifles and that thing's a fucking laser. Nice. That's, so, uh, that's pretty sweet to like, uh, for, cause like we don't use thermal, if you're, it's mainly snipers that are going to use a thermal site. So I've like dicked around with them, but I don't have a lot of time on them. I have a lot of time under nods. Um, but to shoot an, <laughs> are they like, do they even, they probably don't even know you're there, right? Like, so uh, I have cams. And so when the cams nice. go up, um, I pop out and then uh, the, dude, the thermal is so ridiculous to the point where uh, it's kind of almost cheating. You mm-hmm. like set it up and you're like, oh, well, press play. It's like a video game. And then it goes out and then I, I take the pigs and I drag them up into my neighbor's pasture and leave them. It's something I call the altar. It's like a whole bunch of rocks. <laughs> and then uh, it's pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, uh, t- to the point where I've killed enough pigs where they won't even like come on our property anymore. They just stay on the oh. other side of the fence. They're pretty smart. That's so. uh, it's like you're running a compound in uh, on a deployment. Oh yeah, because like so, if the Afghans got on the ridge lines around us, like my my chief would he wouldn't mortar them, but he would mortar close enough where they would not want to go up there anymore as, to, as a deterrent, like stay the fuck away type thing. Well, and the, then uh, the pigs are pretty, smart, man. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm sure they're I mean smarter than the Afghans. I would imagine. <laughs> uh, do they ta- do they have any? How do they taste? Are they worth keeping, or you just put them on the uh, altar? The uh, the little ones. I know people are going to freak out on this one. I'll keep the little ones. Um, normally, what I'll do is if they're you know fifty seventy five pounds, I'll keep them and I get them turned into dog food. And oh, uh, but, but the bigger ones like that that one I shot was probably three hundred pounds, two hundred seventy five, three hundred. So um, the beast. best part, yeah, no, the best part is I hacked its head off with a machete while my kids were out there. You know, and, and then I work through the neck and then I'm stomping on the, you know, basically on the, uh, the spine to snap the head off. Yeah. And like my kids are out there cause I woke them up to come take pictures. Cause I, I was like, this thing's huge. I, I need some physical reference. So I woke my kids up to take pictures <laughs> and then they're out there watching me. Ha- you know, I'm in like, this is so bad. I have a helmet. So I got an ops core with a PBS 14 okay, and, then, nice. uh, and, and then a laser. And then, uh, you know, so then what I'll do is I'll shoot with my laser, like on a, you know, uh, basically an FBR, uh, SBR, like a 10, uh, I think it's an HK 416, nice. you 10, know, 10, barrel. And then I got a, a, a what is it? A PEC 15, uh, yeah. laser on it like so I can shoot. And then, and then if, uh, I also got, um, a 308 SBR set up with thermal. So I kind of like 
depends on what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, that PBS 14 and uh, dude caught that thing on the run. And I was like, yes, this is my first confirmed like big kill. You got that with the laser then. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was running laser. and you got to like use. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. No. So all of a sudden I'm leading it and all of a sudden you're just dumping it. And that's when I woke the kids up. And so like the kids are out there. I got like a helmet on with like, you know, the thing up. I'm in basically boxer shorts and then, <laughs> and then uh, uh, like rubber boots. <laughs> and I like, like my kids probably are like, my dad is insane. He's out in his underwear killing things and then hacking their heads off. I'm like, it's fine. Just stay over there. You know, that's one of the closest things that you probably could have done to replicate what living on an outpost is like. Because we would just be like in short little shorts and tank tops and like if we needed to throw our kid on or whatever, there'd be like wild dogs out there. Um, you might be interested in this. Is is the is this podcast, when you guys release it, do you release video too? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Check this out. This is the M4 I had when I got blown up. Oh, nice. And it got blown apart. Um, the buttstock was blown apart. The like old map pull grip. Yeah, uh, man, I I got the same at peel on the front of mine. Nice. Yep. The the barrels all bent and shit. But uh, the EOT so if file this away. But EOTech always guaranteed like that their shit would would stay zeroed if it got broken or something. And my and my buddy, he was standing in front of me. He didn't lose any limbs, but his EOTech was also broken, and uh, both of them held their zero. Mm with broken glass and that's no other optic can do that if it gets broken so uh, that's pretty cool um but yeah got the laser on the end these are all this is all like inert now which is why i have it but uh yeah so this is the uh, this is the thing i was carrying oh the the fucking rails falling apart because oh, it got broken here's a piece <laughs> but yeah this is a. Uh, this was my this is the shards of narseal is, is that <laughs> sword uh, that was broken is that uh is it a cult lower um yeah yeah is that the roll mark is it a cult i actually don't know like i'm i uh knew a lot about this particular weapon system but i'm not like as much of a gun guy as our weapons dudes actually yep uh it doesn't say like the model but it is a yeah, cult. It's, it's a cult yeah it's, it's always they, curious on the roll mark geisley state states you cr triggers that have full auto which i don't know what states you can do full auto in or whatever but yeah, the guys. You know what? I mentioned this earlier. Your HK four one six. The guy who developed that, I'm friends with. Mm. Only he uh, he was in CAG for a long time, the Delta Force, and so he finished his career in R and D. But I didn't realize that he had done that, and we have a mutual friend and stuff. But he uh, basically that gun exists because of him. So yeah, that's no, kind of cool. That like, I was random. fortunate. I got the upper, and then um, the lower. I found a dude that was doing eighty percent uh, billet lowers that matched the HK lower. So I took it, Ooh. I actually machined it out um, so I could create an HK416 pistol when we were living Whoa. in California. Yeah. So it's got Geisy trigger. And then what I did is I went and I, uh, we went over to Surefire, uh, which were down the street. And at the time, Barry Duke was training with us, who's the head guy for sure, or who does all their weapon stuff for Surefire. Oh. So we went over there just to go check all their shit out. And they had one. And it was the only one I'd ever seen. It was a military issue, you know, because they could have like post, you know, machine guns. So I snapped pictures. And then went basically threw it up on my computer and knocked off all of the, like the uh, the logos and designs, and yeah. and then somehow figured out their font and then took it to a dude and he lasered it so I could have like an HK four sixteen pistol, <laughs> you know. Nice. So yeah, and then when I moved to Cal or when I moved to Texas, I just SBR'd it. Yeah. And uh, man, that thing's been uh, it's been a hammer, especially with the Surefire suppressor. Man, the thing has been really well. Nice. I mean, I, dude, I've dumped a ton of ton of uh, of uh, ammo through that thing and like. I've gone to clean it and the thing is like spotless all the time. 
Yeah, because it's the piston, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just super clean, and uh, man, it's it's really, it's like one of those things where I'm like, man, this I know this thing's really expensive because there's probably gun people that are obsessed with HK and owning yeah. things that are like soft related and so common, all that. Fuck, I just dump as money as much as I can through it. I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna shoot this motherfucker out. That's a. Uh... You probably have more time shooting with a suppressor than I do because when I was in combat, I just ran the gun as you saw it because uh, if it was daytime and the engagements were not typically closer than 50 meters and like they knew where we were anyway because they could see us and they were setting up defensive fighting positions. But yeah, I just ran it like that. What's the farthest you've hit with uh, your AR platform, like on a target uh, or You mean 5.56? Five, five, yeah. Oh, man. I've, I've, I've never shot 5.56 five, out past maybe like a buck fifty. Yeah, like um, like they like so so. What's interesting is at least hunting here in Texas, uh, I've shot plenty of boars with five five six, and they've run off. Yeah, because so, it zips through them. Yeah, like it will, or or it stays in them. I, I've killed boars, um, and they've had bullet wounds in them that have healed over. So they are by far like one of the most durable things I've ever come across. It's so, like a video game. So <laughs> just... I I just got pit. So so you either have to like hit them like headshot them like legitimate face shot. Or if, like, cause if you shoot them in the body or in the ass or anywhere on the backside, cause they're kind of all front loaded with all their, yeah. uh, all their internals. Uh, so I just went to 308 because I got tired of chasing them and I, and I, I would have to go out and stalk them and go find them. And then they're yeah. like down in the Creek and I'm like, Oh fuck, it's midnight. I gotta go get this thing. And, uh, so the little ones I'll shoot five, five, six, but all the big ones I shoot 308 cause I like to knock them down. Yeah. Plus they're fucking dangerous, aren't they? Like, uh, can't they yeah, well, be fucking uh, dangerous dude the the best was i chase uh i came out and i shot one and two others ran and i chased them like trying to run and trying to shoot them with the laser and i remember thinking like this if these things turned on me like this is a bad fucking idea yeah and uh yeah so it was um yeah it's been fun but you the, have the hunt you have the, uh, the the thrill of the hunt like out your front door oh yeah <laughs> no and and my wife like all of a sudden i'll be sitting there and the phone will buzz and i'll like get big she's like are there pigs out there i'm like yeah that's fucking i'm gonna go get them like, <laughs> keep the kids inside she's like he's got to get it out of his system no well she uh they're super destructive so we yeah. went away for like four or five days and and it must have been about 18 <clears throat> pigs came through or 30 pigs and Damn. just decimated our pasture so i went out there because um our neighbor's got a horse school and a whole bunch of horses. So she turns all of her horses out in our pastures Yeah. Uh, in exchange for my daughter to ride. And it just, we're just doing some neighborly trade. And yeah. uh, uh, so all of a sudden the pigs dig holes. And so she didn't want to turn the horses out. So I had to go fix all of that, like dig it up, bring earth in, mm. get it all done. And so it took me like eight hours to fix the entire pasture. And yeah. at that point I was like, shit's on. So do, do you think yeah. they sensed the alpha's gone? Let's go fuck his shit up. Uh, well, they're they're pretty smart. Like if they see like lights on and they know mm. and they know I'm home, then they're gonna come fuck shit up. If the lights are on and they know that they think I'm there, they're gonna come in or they're just gonna stay away. That's interesting because they probably they probably like tentatively look. It's like I don't know. They're just like a destructive little fucker. And then not there are not many people that live in areas where they have to deal with a wildlife pest. And so, like, the concept of hunting is foreign to them. You know, there's tons of people like that. But, like, when there's truly, like, a monetary and time damage from this bullshit animal, and then you're like, yeah, now I need to actually defend this property. Do you have any dogs or anything or any yeah, other no. animals? Yeah, no, I, I got two pit bulls, but they're huge pussies. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they like, they, uh, my one pit bull is the sweetest animal. He's so dumb, though. And my other pit bull is kind of lazy. <laughs> 
So yeah. like I, I was thinking like the next dog I'm getting, I'm either going to get like a, like a Borable or a, not a Borable, uh, like a Dogo Argentino, which are like those big white, like Argentinian massives that they used to like hunt boars. Yeah. I'm going to get one of those and I'm going to put battle armor on them and then we're going to go out there and we're going to oh, go get shit. those pigs. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy, man. Like, uh, at least at our place, um, I was literally killing them every single night. Like I would, uh, like I, like the cams were coming up and like, yeah. dude, I, I, I have a, a 308 with a pretty nice night force. It's like a four to 16 that I would put that PBS 30. I just left it outside on a picnic table, uh, like in, like on our backyard and then I'd have all my gear stashed. And when the lights would go on, like wherever I was, I would just go sight them on that or, you know, go get my rifle. And dude, I was pretty aggressively attacking them. And then all of a sudden I didn't see one for like six months. And then I went over into my neighbor's pasture to, to, cause he's old and I go check his stuff out and yeah. his pasture was decimated. Like they were staying on that side of the fence. Mm. So that was pretty wild. So then I had to go move all my cams and like reposition. And then I'm, I've been restocking them. Uh, but this is, it, it's getting warm. They're going to start showing up again. So I got to probably here in the next couple of days, go out That's there nuts and do, that do you, some repositioning. You're like, you're like uh, gaining and losing territory. Against this foe, <laughs> and and, and crazy to like track them over time with your intel. Dude, they can have I think it's two to three litters a year, and uh, and, oh, and yeah. a, a a sow can have um, you know piglets at like nine months or so. I mean, it might even be less than that, and they'll have between six and eight piglets. So I mean, they are it's, like it's they reproduce it's absolute, like fuck yeah. So like you have to like shoot everyone you see. And then what's funny is there's like a next door, you know, that next door app where people bitch about their neighbors and they're yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm throwing shit away. So we're out in the country, but there's a couple big developments that are like high dollar developments that I, I still get the notifications for, for backdoor. And so it's a bunch of people from California and other places moving in. They're like, oh, it's great. going to live in Texas. And then the pigs will come and just decimate their entire lawn and like rip up all their <laughs> irrigation. And they were like, this is, you know... <laughs> Some of the, you know, some kids came and vandalized our neighborhood and dug up all of our stuff. Yeah. And they're like posting pictures and people are like, oh, those are pigs. And they're like, this is insane. Who do we call to trap and get rid of these things? And I, I just fucking laugh. I'm like, yeah. uh, where are you guys from? You know, yeah. I always hit them up. And it's always like California, Arizona, you know, uh, uh, New York and, you know, different places. And I'm like, well, welcome to Texas. Go get yeah. some guns and shoot those motherfuckers. Grow a mustache, put some aviators on, and defend <laughs> your property. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, but they're. I mean, they're they're living in these you know million and a half dollar houses behind gates, and these pigs are just decimating them. I think it's hysterical. Little fuckers out here. I'm at eighty six hundred feet in the mountains near Pikes Peak, uh, just west oh. of Colorado Springs. And Shit. have uh, you been out to Pikes Peak? I've driven up it. I haven't, I haven't walked up it, and I won't be walking up any mountains anytime well, soon. But uh, uh, the the race, the Pikes Peaks race. That the the race that goes up it or up. whatever. Oh my god! Yeah, that thing's. I've never seen that, but that is. I've watched a video of it. It's like 19 miles, and they do it like super fucking quick. It's Dude, insane. There's a guy. Um, I can't remember his name, but he has like a 50, a 56 F100. Uh, it's called Old, Old Smoky. It's like a uh, like a triple turbo Cummins motor in this uh, basically 50s race truck. And the thing is, like, I follow him on Instagram. If you look, it's like Old Smokey, I think is the name of it. And that dude holds the Pikes Peak record for whatever his class is. Jesus. And, like, it's pretty amazing watching, like, the dude wrecked it. And, like, I, I, like I'd, I'd love to go just to see the race because it looks insane. Have you, have you been on the mountain? Okay, no, driving I, up there, like, like, the switchbacks don't have a fucking railing. Like, yeah. sometimes there's a switchback and it's like a fucking cliff. And yeah. it goes down, like, 2,000 feet. You know, it's not like... It, 
there's not a room for error doing that. Steve, you know, like that's what makes that race. Like, I mean, uh, watching on YouTube, I, I want to go see it in person because I've, I've watched it for years on, uh, on, you know, on, on videos and YouTube or whatnot, but I heard it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Cause they probably haul balls on the straightaways and then they have to have like really good, I assume braking acceleration <laughs> to get around those. Yeah. Plus there's a fuckload of marmots up there and, uh, they probably don't get on the road for the race, but they're, they're like all over the place up there. Like the looking like beavers, uh, yeah. So up here, there's, there's a bunch of deer, like mule deer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> I think they're trying to pass this thing where you can like do archery within the city limits. And I'm in like a small town, but I don't think you can, I can't, I think it's not allowed to like engage them in any kind of way here. I think it's frowned and, upon. Like, it's but, not that you can't, especially if you had like a crossbow, <laughs> which, uh, my buddy has a crossbow and he busted it out and like I, it's as fast as a forty-five. Like I think it's like four hundred feet per second off the string. Whoa, dude, that would be like just hang out by the window and be like clear. <laughs> that would be kind of sweet because then you could. It's you, I think about like crossbows in like a medieval time or or something like that. And just dude, look it up. Uh, it's called Raven or Ten Point. I, I can't remember which one he has, but like it's pretty compact. And uh, we were legitimately hitting targets. Like, so I, he, he, he had a red dot on his, which was pretty wild. So, uh, <laughs> and, sweet. and he had a uh, range finder. So we ranged it. And it was like 100 yards or 105. And basically, he's like, okay, hey, here, here are the clicks. It's sighted at 40 yards. And then, you know, here's the deal. Like, let's say it's like, yeah. you know, three clicks was, was whatever. I basically put the third click on, hit it, and basically hit a 100-yard target the first time I shot it. That's insane. I mean, and I mean, it wasn't bullseye. It was probably off by like two or three inches. But it was enough to be a, like on, on a legitimately, uh, you know, body-sized target. That's pretty cool, though. Is that, So for this for this crossbow, would you have to, re- what's it called, resetting it or, or winding it up or anything for the next arrow? Or are there crossbows yeah. that... Oh, like, no, no, once it goes, but it's got like a little crank system. It's pretty easy. It like cranks back and then you just slide another one in. I mean, it's, fuck, dude. If like Genghis Khan had these, we'd all be speaking (laughs) Mongolian. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like like those crossbows. I don't think I've shot a crossbow, yeah. That's sweet because like 100 meters is like, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of people can't hit with a fucking, any kind of iron sight or any kind of optic with that. (laughs) But... (laughs) But uh, well, I, I just pulled one up. They got a sight on this one. Yes, yeah. no, they ain't, they're not cheap. No, they're expensive. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're not cheap. Yep, that's it. What oh, does he dang. use them for? Uh, any is he in Texas? This guy and does he use them for on animals or is yeah, it like a recreational thing? Yeah, so so you can use so you can hunt. Um, so in Texas, you can hunt invasive species all year round, and then you you know obviously during deer season and there's bow season, you can use a crossbow during bow season. That's pretty sick. Oh, dude, they are. I mean, I. Yeah, I mean, and it's it, like me being, of course, a little odd. I just was imagining. I was like, "Can you imagine doing a drive-by shooting with this thing?" <laughs> like, like it's one thing to get shot with a bullet, but all of a sudden you got like a, a basically like a bolt or a um, you know like a, a broomstick sticking out. You're like, oh, yeah. What is kind of like a Mad Max, Doc? Mad Max Two in particular, because they have those little tiny crossbows that keep shooting yeah. people's chests. Oh, dude, that'd be great. <laughs> um, when I was in. All right. Uh, near Fort Hood, uh, we were doing some pre-deployment training, and that's the area. And you tell me more about this because you live out there. Where some of those African species of, like the dick dick and stuff, like mm-hmm. there's like random like weird African animals that are just oh, out. When in the you were in California, red... in Central California, 
Fort Hood. Oh, oh, Fort, uh, I'm Fort sorry, here in so Texas. not Fort Hood, uh, Fort Bliss and uh, near San Ant. Where the fuck is that? No, there's uh, there allegedly I, there are more African lions in Texas than there are in Africa. Whoa! So so uh, when you drive around te- Texas, you, you'll go and there'll be all these like kind of like real high fences, and yeah. a lot of times with the high fences, uh, they have exotics, and so um, like if you go down twelve, like you're going to Driftwood to where um, uh, Salt Lake Salt Lake is, there's a, a huge uh, bunch of uh, ostriches. So mm-hmm. I came across like a, like a, a school of like a hundred, or I guess a flock of like a hundred ostriches just yeah. like hanging out. And I was like, oh, and I've, I've gone by, I've seen zebras. Yeah. I've seen giraffe and just crazy stuff driving around. What kind of, what kind of land is that on? Is that private land or just like some yeah, of the protected area? And- 3% of Texas is public land. Everything's owned here. So these guys have like, like 10,000 acres, you know, and, and money. And they basically put up high fences and then they just go get a bunch of exotics and and because they're invasive and they're not Texas native, they're not subject to, to hunting. So you can hunt those like, uh, have you ever seen, um, oh God, what are those big uh, spotted deer? Um, uh, it'll come to me in a second. Um, but dude, mom, yeah, I, I keep thinking of, um, they're, yeah, well, they're, they're these big African deer that they brought here. And you see them, uh, and I mean, they, they have incredible racks and everything. And kudu, uh, yeah, uh, kudu, oh. and then there's another one. Yeah, uh, I, bongo, no, impala, no, Jemsbach. no, sable bull, no, Nile lechwi. Um, no. Well, there's uh, they they also have audads, which are like these big sheep, and the, that's another sheep. The ones that's, with uh, the yeah, like horned, the crazy horned ones. ones? Or yeah. yeah, dude. Nice. So so like people hunt odd ads. I mean, there's it's pretty interesting. Like they uh, you know because they bring them here and they flourish because the weather's you know probably similar to Africa for most of the year. Yeah, and uh, they're just super hardy and man, they they go there's, and hunt them. There's some charity organizations that do hunts because all that I didn't realize that's how much private land there was out there. But uh, they'll take like injured guys out and then they get to take one of those African animals that are not common here and they get to and then they give them the meat. They butcher it and give them the meat. So. Now that COVID's over, I'll probably see if I can play around down there because that sounds pretty cool. Especially yeah. having the meat and just like stock in a freezer of like this. Ex- like, hey, do you want this exotic African? Oh yeah, animal? no, we. Uh, God, um, I'm, I'm totally blanket on this animal. It's um, it's a big spotted deer and it's a big rack. No, it's not that. Um, but if you put in, I can't believe I'm, I'm dropping a blank on this. Are they? Uh, do, do any of those different species like? Do they? Do they demand a different hunting style or tactic compared to what your traditional whitetail or something like that uh, would have? I, I will say whitetail are, uh, um, are I mean, uh, you know, obviously we kill a decent amount of them, uh, but uh, dude, they are uh, because they're. I wouldn't. I mean, they're not intelligent at all, but they're so uh, like emotionally probably intelligent or or just like so scared and like so open to fright that like at, at least where we are because I hunt them. Uh, you know, they are pretty agile, but the problem is, is in like in Lakeway and like a lot of the uh, planned communities and things that are inside the city limits because the deer don't get hunted and they don't, they have been hunted for years. They're pretty much like, like pets where they like come up and they eat mm. people's like yards and they hang out. 
I was over at Harry Shaw's house and all of a sudden I looked out and there was like three nice sized deer just basically hanging out in the backyard and the dog's out there barking and they're not even moving because they haven't been hunted. So where we are Fuck those deer, dude. Listen to this. Two different <laughs> situations in my town in Woodland Park. Uh, one of them is that, so people feed these things from yeah. their decks and then Which they obviously- ridiculous. Yeah, that's not cool because then they, like I've had some young young little dudes trying to get on my deck and I was like, get the fuck out of here, man. you know, like brandishing a stick at them and stuff. But one of them went into this lady's home. She's like 70 something coming in from the grocery store. She turns around and this motherfucker's standing in her kitchen because she left the door open to go in and out. And she was like, shoot, get out of here. And then it's, it like approached her. And so she turned around to go get a broom and it fucking came up and like hoofed her on the back where the news article like showed a picture of her back with the bruising. So she was like defending her fucking kitchen to this deer who was trying to get a snack. Second story is that my friend, he's, we knew each other in college, but he's, uh, he's, uh, in the army now. And he, uh, when he was deployed, their dog with pit lab mix got attacked by a buck gored like through the fucking chest and stuff bleeding and and his wife did she rendered aid she, he's a special forces medic so she knew enough to render aid and uh that dog had a tension pneumothorax and a hemothorax so like air and blood and the chest being built up because there's a hole in it and then when i came into that situation i was helping take the dog from the home excuse me from the vet to the home but this vet didn't refer because he's a dickhead and shitty doctor but he didn't do like an exploratory surgery for the trauma and it wasn't in his wheelhouse anyway. So you're supposed to, you know, medevac that shit. But anyway, as the dog was waking up, I've been around a lot of animals and stuff. Uh, we're doing the veterinary training coming out of anesthesia. And then as she came out, she was just in more pain. And then she had labored breathing. And then there was subcute emphysema, subcutaneous emphysema is like uh, air bubbles under the skin that shouldn't be there. And it feels like Rice Krispies. And so I was like, if I teach this to like an infantry dude or an Afghan or someone who's, you know, needs an algorithmic thing, it's like, if you have a mechanism of injury in the chest and then they have labored breathing, they get a needle D to relieve that and they need to go to the hospital or our next level of care. And uh, so I called my buddy who was a medic with me on my first team. He comes over, we drive down the mountain pass. It's like nine o'clock at night. And in the mountain pass, I needle deed the dog in the car. <laughs> saved its life uh then delivered it it was in the icu for a few days that dog's alive now but the point being the motherfucking buck attacked that dog so now i'm well, just like i'm dude, aggressive with the deer when they come on my property i'm like get the fuck out of here motherfucker like dude the problem is is that they um uh like they and and this isn't 100 percent accurate but they're kind of like rats uh here mm, in texas yeah there's so many of them that if you don't take as many as you can, like if I don't max out my tag, like um, I got, I, I only take one buck a year, but I shoot a whole bunch of does. And the problem is if you don't, they run into traffic. And I think like what people forget yeah. is like, if there's no con uh, conservation ship and if you don't take it, then it like, so my goal is to go out and I know it sounds terrible, but I take all the old moms because that way you give room for the young moms to come in. And then that helps with the bloodline. So you gotta go take the old moms, you gotta make room for the new moms and it just, prevents them from running out into traffic and hitting cars yeah. and then some lady in a minivan fucking plows in and she gets killed because invariably they're going to run into traffic yeah and um the amount of people i know that have, you know text dude you've been well one hit me i was going yeah. 59 miles an hour if i was going or wait and no, i was going 60 if i was going 59 i would have been slightly behind yeah. it and taking it head on yeah. but then hit my driver's side door yeah so i Damn, uh, you know i mean it's one of those things where you know, hey, if I get, you know, two buck tags and I get five does, I got to take them. 
and uh, you know, so in, in years past, I'd always wait to take the dose after I took the buck. Now I'm just going to go take the dose on the first day because uh, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, she's probably pregnant, and then you start feeling bad. So I'm just going to get them on the on the first day. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the one thing that you know, the conservation effort that you alluded to is that that's calling the herd, and that's what apex predators do. Like they yeah. they we just voted to reintroduce wolves in Colorado. And uh, when they did that, I think in Yosemite or yeah. there's like a real, they, there's a real bitchin' study that they did about when they did Yosemite that all of a sudden like the rivers changed, yeah, like the whole like 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 the, the whole ecosystem. wildlife ecosystem, yeah, completely yeah. became healthy because they weren't the basically the herbivores weren't overeating on the veg, and then that didn't that that led to the soil drying out, and then there was like I guess more uh, arid environment for the waterways, and then. The reversal because that was in the 90s i think when they yeah. when they finally reintroduced them and then just the observation has been that everything's more lush and uh then you also don't have those overly populated herds and so that's what <laughs> that's funny though because you're you are the apex predator in your ao and you, you're uh and you're you keeping it. you're keeping them in check and you're calling the herds which they need to because it protects people and then yeah it's like a win-win for everybody except for you know though them but if their species is gonna thrive then that they need to lose some it's kind of like trees like not all of them are gonna make it yeah i mean there we have a decent amount of coyotes so um for the most part as long as the coyotes don't come on our property i don't fuck with them like i don't shoot them from distance mm -hmm. um but I've, I've actually caught a couple of them and actually i caught a uh a mountain lion on oh. uh on one of our cams and that's what i've been really excited for Man, I'd, I'd like to engage that, and if I could take a mountain lion here, I'd be pretty excited. <laughs> that would be intense. I've never, uh, I think I've heard some, while, you know, like hiking and stuff, but I haven't encountered one yeah. while hiking. But that's, uh, yeah, they're powerful as fuck. Yeah, no, well, so my uh, my neighbor's got chickens, and uh, man, they fucking, dude, those, like, he'll lose. Uh, he's got goats and chickens, and all of a sudden, like, five goats will be missing. Wow, and uh, he was like, he's like, I think somebody's stealing my goats, and I'm like, well, I, did, <laughs> I did see a mountain lion on the cam. There's a good chance that you're that those things were dinner for a mountain lion, yeah. and then and then the coyotes will come, and uh, on, on occasion they'll kind of clip one of the one of the young ones. So I mean, it's just it's part of the deal, man. There, there's an interesting ecosystem and the circle of life. Yeah, but it's all interrelated, for sure. John so when, apex predator. Nah, I'm just I'm just a normal dude who's got a bunch of land who's just trying to like make sure shit doesn't get fucked up, like and not having to work my entire Saturday digging fucking holes. Yeah, um, it's kind of it's kind of like being a farmer, dude. What uh, I, I mean, um, I, like I don't want you to relive anything, but uh, I like I'm fine um, talking about it at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah, dude. Um, well, I don't want to talk about it, but uh, what um, what's the extent of the injury? Just just so that I know, because I was watching the Paralympics last night. And I knew we had this podcast and I'm like, I wonder if we could get some of those carbon fiber legs for you. Yeah. So I am a below the knee. I'm a double below the knee amputee, but my amputations are shittier than a normal below the knee because they're just traumatically done and they had to take a lot of my muscle. So um, normally if you, when people like, for example, if only your toes were blown off, you would get your foot amputated and you'd have your entire tibia. And then, uh, uh, my legs aren't right here, but if you think about uh, the tibia going into a socket, the longer that lever arm, then the more leverage there is to to move that leg. So sure. my my tibias are like, you know, six to eight inches long, from, and even shorter if you're going from the tibial tuberosity to the end. They're not. They're only like 
that much longer than the tibial tuberosity. So I don't have a lot of length and there's no muscle. There's a little bit of gastroc on one of my legs that I can still contract. Um, but normally when you do an amputation like that, you do like a posterior to anterior, you take like the soleus or the gastroc and then you pull it over the front of the tibia, like the end of the bone. And then you suture it into the bone on the front, the anterior side. And so that gives all that cushion. I just don't have any of that shit. Uh, so I won't have like the, I don't have the anatomy to like innervate some of like the MIT prosthetics that have some proprioception and shit. I just don't have any of that. And, uh, so my fit in my socket is still a little variable, but like, I, I'm still not even like going two, three months at a time straight with just no pain. Like right now I got an issue on one of my fibular heads and it's just the nature of not having the cushion and having like a small, uh, blown up remnant of a leg. And then additionally, I lost a fair amount of musculature in my thighs. And I, um, so I lost my, uh, both testicles completely. It was like, uh, just kind of like blasted apart when the blast happened, it blew my left foot off. And then my right leg was basically burned and like charred to the bone. And the only thing that wasn't hurt was my fucking foot because I had a solo boots on like solo mountaineering boots, which are sweet and, uh, which were great for mountains and stuff. Uh, but in any case that that leg had to get taken, there's just tons of bacterial and fungal infections. And then my pressure, my blood pressure was really shitty cause it was trying to perfuse that leg and everything. But, um, so I got to keep both my knees, which is huge. And then I lost basically all of my vastus medialis on both thighs. And I like to think that the size of them ate the blast and saved my dick. Cause I do have my penis and it works for the things I need it to. Um, but there's like shrapnel in it. And then my testicles you know, my, my scrotum just, we call it healing by second intent, which means secondary intent, which means it just heals on its own. <laughs> so but I, my, my actual pouch of what is remaining is just, it was just like scar tissue, but that had to just heal on its own. So they throw a couple the, extra marbles in there for you. I didn't, they, they do that, but I was just like, yeah, I mean, like I, if I, I don't want something in there and it's not going to do anything. Like it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like kind of a pain in the ass to have big balls or whatever and you have to like especially when your legs are rubbing together all the time yeah so yeah my so i have a lot of like scarring up through my the medial part of my thigh all the way into my crotch and then i had some stuff like hit me in the the gooch area and i had like a piece of my butt um but as far as uh the main disability is the well other than like the potential lack of fatherhood is the uh below the knee stuff and so I haven't even ran. It's I'm a little over. It's almost like two and a half years at this point post injury. I've I've like run and with my current legs, they kind of have a little bit of a blade shape to them. So there's a little bit of uh, uh, what is that? Well, uh, dorsal plantar flexion. What's that? Refor the uh, the force return app. You know, whatever. Yeah. You, it kind of I can't remember the stored energy basically as you're walking or running. So I can kind of like run on the toes and, and like a velociraptor. Um, but uh, I haven't gotten any blades yet because it's just like the impact of running is going to be something I'm going to have to like ease into. And it's it's not like a, a strain on muscles and stuff. It's like if my bones are going to be slamming into that socket. So walking is like what I primarily do. And then for training, I don't I can't squat because I can't bend my knee in the socket because it like pinches in the back of my leg because I have to have the sockets have to be so high because my limbs are so short. So I can't really like squat, but I deadlift, uh, push the sled. Those are my primary. And then maybe like RDLs or something. I can swing a kettlebell, uh, put different feet attachment on to do that. And then uh, just kind of do like a, an upper bo normal upper body stuff that, that we would all do with like power athlete approach essentially. And then uh, 
assault bike and shit like that. But so the so as far as sports go or athletic endeavor, any kind of athletic endeavor, like I, I'm not, I don't feel the need to like really compete because like my the real thing that I want to do is walk around without pain and be able to walk in my neighborhood <laughs> and shit like that and then go on some hikes. And so I don't know that I'll be doing any kind of like impact or anything like that. And I'm not into like wheelchair based things because I, I can walk fine when even if I'm in pain, like I still walk. But uh, but yeah, I'm just mainly maintaining. And then every now and then I'll do something that is kind of like breaching into that testing it's not really like a true physical test because i really don't feel the need to do any of that anymore <laughs> but uh it's more of like when i'm pushing the sled i'm like all right i'm gonna do like five down and backs and like by the third one i'm like oh fuck what am i doing i'm like fuck it i'll just we'll see how it goes and like and i'm at 180 heart rate heartbeat at the end of it so i do I dabble in a little bit of stuff but it's mostly kind of uh just doing stuff for longevity and health and then just being jacked because you know i get a little test in clomid now without the testes so I don't have to do too much to kind of maintain or build. So it's like intermittent fasting, like power building, plus uh, some some uh, conditioning and cardiovascular stuff, and a lot of sauna. Sauna's sweet. So so you're a big fan of the infrared sauna? Yeah, mine's dry and IR. Um, mm-hmm. I had a charity buy it, but it's like a four-person too, so you could seat one and a half Wellborns. And, uh, <laughs> I was going to say we can come over and get weird. Yeah. Uh, but it's sweet. Yeah, I use it every day. And then using the salt stuff like an electrolyte drink is uh, life-saving. That jump, you know, my heart rate variability improves significantly with that. But, yeah, the sauna does so much shit. Like for, you know, us or probably all three of us in that sense, I don't want to leave Tex out with his potential brain injury, but that brain-derived neurotropic factor that's being released from the heat shock proteins and just the cardiovascular stress, and it is even better when you do it post-workout. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I do it like every day. And uh, 15 to probably usually 15 to 25 minutes, and it helps with sleep. Sometimes I'll do it before sleep, and it's just like how hot rocks and rolls. Like uh, 140, 170. Uh, IRs, I'll go to 140. I haven't really gone above that because, um, you know, how that Tommy Tough Guy thing people apply that to various things. Like, like you don't need 195 degree sauna, like my dry would be 175, and then the IR, I said, yeah, 140 140 and the IR is is about where where you want to be. It was funny. God, what's uh what's the name of the dude from uh, Sparta Science? Uh, Dr. Phil Wagner. Yeah, yeah, Doctor Phil Wagner. We were talking, and he was like going to these weird Russian uh, bathhouse where they yeah. like have it at like two hundred and fifty degrees, and they beat you with these like eucalyptus things. And as he was telling me about it, <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah, I, I was like, that sounds fucking awful. And he's like, would well, you sign? I'm like, yeah, I got an IR one, um, and you know, you only go up to one forty. And he was like. Oh, that sounds way better than then I got like a, <laughs> uh, I think the next time I saw him or he dropped me a text, he's like, dude, I totally just stopped going to that shit. And he's like, I got an IR one, 140. He's like, it's total. I can stay in there 25, 30, 40 minutes and everything's fine. Well, um, who like, beats him? Uh, fat Russians. <laughs> Still? Very angry Russians, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Fat, yeah. Fat Russians. And they have these huge eucalyptus, like, uh, uh, like big, like pile of sticks and they set it on fire and it starts smoking. And then I guess they just beat you with it. Fuck. That I yeah like well, like just, some, some somebody suggested it they're like oh what do you think I'm like that sounds like a fucking terrible idea I'm not I, paying for that I just thought of Eastern Promises Vigo Mortensen have you seen that well, yeah he's uh, the butt naked ass fight. naked in a fight scene in there dude uh, do do you remember Arnold in Red Heat 
in the opening scene when he See, goes into the Russian... I never actually watched it. You, you recommended mean, we, it. We fucking did a movie <laughs> review and you didn't watch it? No. You fucking bastard. I like how uh, John references the one of the more obscure Arnold films that he's like it's, a connoisseur. It's, it's, it's by far one of my favorites is Red Heat. And in it, in the opening scene, when he goes in there and the guy like, uh, you know, like, like, like the big dude gets up and he, he puts a rock in his hand. He goes, if you're a, you know, an iron worker, the heat's nothing. And he takes it and punches him. Those guys were in like some weird Russian. I, I just imagine those dudes are beating you with eucalyptus leaves. Yeah. They're, they're like, ah, Privia Drusia. And they're just like, cheeky breaky. Yeah. They're like, yeah. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, uh, yeah. Something wild. So, so, okay. So, uh, um, you know, when did this, like, uh, when did this happen? Like, I mean, you said second appointment. Was this, and you said two years ago? So we like 2019? Yeah, March 5th, 2019. I was, uh, we had done a few missions up to that point, some combat missions that weren't crazy rowdy. I did like a little, drove like a click away with a Razor team a week before, and we took contact with my machine gun there and I dropped mortars on it. And I wasn't wearing a helmet because I didn't expect to get in contact. I was just like drinking tea and was like, what the, what's that noise? Uh, but yeah, the, 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 mission that it happened on we were doing a valley clearance there's a big ass valley and there were two odas or special forces teams on each side and uh there were so many ieds just everywhere because isis was bringing that tactic from the syria and iraq war as they kind of drew down there they were pushing i guess the tactics or the those subject matter experts to teach ied building and shit down to our guys our enemy and uh, we found a bunch of them there was one in the wadi which you know, like a wadi's like a kind of like a large ditch, kind of what you would probably find in a lot of areas in Texas. And like one of my Afghans walked through one, he and it did not detonate. And then, uh, so I was like, my team sergeant was like, let's get the fuck out of these, this wadi and we'll go on the trail and just deliberately clear and then mark and bypass. So when you find one, you basically put chalk around it or quarantine it or something and have people standing there so that people don't step on it. But, um, the, the, we had an Afghan EOD element, which are quite good. Um, and they cleared the path and then there was like a compound in the center of the valley and you don't, it's kind of like at your house, Johnny, like you wouldn't shoot in an area that would potentially have an angle going towards your home, right? Like you're shooting sure. away from your home, I assume. So we don't want to shoot towards our friends. So before we moved past that, we wanted to clear that. And, uh, it was probably like 60 meters down and like 200 meters away. And I was planning an assault on it and talking with people and I stole my ruck on and then I just like adjusted my ruck and took a step to the left and fucking exploded <laughs> and it just like in it uh also had like a fracture in one of my uh legs the one the leg that had the foot it just like had a, like a tibial fracture and stuff so um so the blast was at an angle I guess is why I was pointing that out and uh there were three Americans and an Afghan all injured in it uh we all got medevaced um, and I was the worst of all of them. And then, uh, so that was March, 2019. And like, when it happened, it was just, you know, it was like three to five seconds of just sheer fucking like terror and panic of just, I was, I remember reaching my hands out and being like, help, help, help. Like looking at one of my friends and, and then, uh, they came to me and put, I had, <laughs> I had like three tourniquets on each leg cause my quads were <laughs> kind of big. So, um, luckily we had all of them and then I don't know. It's kind of cool. It's better than just being like, I only needed one tourniquet per leg. <laughs> but, uh, um, I treated myself in it. I d excuse me. I didn't treat myself. The guys were putting tourniquets on me, but like immediately 
after a brief dissociation of trauma and near-death experience thing that was probably about a minute long from what everybody tells me, came back and I was like, if I'm going to fucking live, then this needs to be like a perfect trauma clinic. And we carried blood on the ground in like a backpack with a cooler. So I was like, go get that dude. I had the interpreter carrying. Go get him. He has the blood. Like, I need a fucking saline lock. I need ketamine. I need a lot of ketamine. (laughs) I was just like, I fucking need that now. And then this other drug that helps clots from breaking down, like essentially it's for when you're heavy bleeding, it's called TXA. So give me TXA, give me ketamine, give me blood. Like that's what I need. And so then I looked down at my kit and like my mags and my fucking shear, my trauma shears like blew out of my kit. And so I like grabbed someone else's shears and I like cut my shirt off. And I was like, like kind of instructing them, like let's get going on this shit. Cause uh, I don't want to, you know, I, it needs to happen if I'm not going to die. And then I think if we didn't have the blood, then I would have absolutely died. And then when I got to the fob after, well, the guys had to medevac me. I don't want to gloss over this where they, it was probably 300 meters at least, but like very mountainous terrain where there was terraces that were like 10 to 15 feet drops. So I was on a Skedco, which I don't know if you've seen that John with like hunting shit. It's like a, a draggable yeah, plastic yeah. sled that can yeah. unroll. And, uh, it was, it was made for elk meat actually. Yeah. And then I uh, got, and then I think the pararescue guys in the Air Force uh, started to learn about it. And then, anyway, we carry it because it's lighter. And uh, you can strap someone in under their arms. So they're vertically lowering me, like vertically hoisting me down these fucking terraces as we're like taking contact and shit. And it was just like a pure chaos. Uh, the valley erupts in gunfire like right after, you know, like there's a machine gun like 10 feet away when I'm getting treated. Like, do, 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 do. Like everything. It's just chaos and shit. And just a lot of noises because there's tons of airstrikes coming in. They're just like everybody in that valley died that day type thing but the guys moved me down and uh got me to an lz and uh they like i trained all these guys in medical training on how to not only do point of injury treatment but we also practiced tons of scenarios of like that where you have a security you have to maintain your security you have to have like a, a movement party to like move the patient you have to have guys go down and clear the lz for ieds and like be the guy that is going to interact with the medevac helicopter to bring them in. Um, so we, they just executed it like we had practiced it, which, you know, any little hiccup in that could have been Justin's dead or any of somebody else could have gotten hurt or something like that. So, um, that's the good thing about our unit is that we, we do a lot of contingency planning and it's a lot of professional implementation of tactics. And, uh, we had two really good teams and, so my guys did a really good job. And then when I got medevac uh, at that, I had surgery for like 12 hours and mainly cause they were doing like a vascular thing to try and save my right leg. Cause I still had my foot. And so that I got, and I got 35 units of whole blood during that time. And just to, to clarify, if you get like six units or 10, that's a lot. <laughs> so I got 30 fucking five. Cause in your body, you probably have, well, John probably has a lot more, but like, Tex and I probably have like 12 units, you know, there's like six to eight liters maybe of blood. Um, so a unit is a half liter and I got 35 of those. And then I got another 30 blood products, which are the same volume, but it's like packed red blood cells or plasma or something. So I got like total, like over 60 blood products in that surgery. And I was apparently raging hard until they knocked me down with the appropriate drugs where like, they were trying to put an arterial line in, in my radial artery, and I just, like, lifted the medic up and, like, pulled him onto the bed. He told me that later. I, I didn't – I don't remember any of that. But I was just, like, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, or helplessness, and I'm, I'm the fight version of that, like, trying to fight for my life, but also just, like – I, like, ripped shit out of me and stuff. It was, rah, like, they, they, like, said that it was, like, 
people remember me screaming that night, like just like fucking raging and fighting everybody until they gave me enough fentanyl and ketamine to put me down. But I had like a, that 12 hour surgery. They stabilized me. They did a vascular graft from like my thigh, my femoral down to my popliteal artery. I think it was my artery, but, uh, um, so they saved my right knee, which I'm grateful for. Cause, uh, being a fucking AK and then a B, an above the knee and a, and a below the knee, AK and BK together is just rough. So I'm a double BK. Um, and then what's, uh, I mean, uh, um, I mean, you probably want some form of like unilateral kind of, I don't know, balance from right to left. So if you're above the knee, you want to be both. If you want to be below the knee, you want to be both. It's probably hard to have one. And I bet you, I mean, the guys that are double AKs, that's worse than being an AK BK. So having one knee is much better than having no knee. And then having both knees is, you know, having more knees is better is basically the summary. Why of is that? Why um, is because, like, when the guys have to walk with their AK setup, like, even if they have a motorized knee that kind of um, controls the eccentric and concentric portion of that movement, but mostly the eccentric one, they have to, like, throw their hip forward so it swings the knee out. And then the motor, like, has a an amount of how far that leg is going to swing out, kind of, like, resisting it so it's not just, like, like a loose fucking joint uh so they when they walk they they have to whatever the weight of their their prosthetic they have to throw that forward with their hip mm. and then with a with a knee all you you know you can hip flex normally and then you have your knee extension to kind of like do your normal like pushing up for heel strike and you have your 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 double support leading into single support of walking and everything and towing off so all of that is like you have way more control of that and you just have more muscles to stabilize because like you know my situation i don't have all those lower leg muscles that are going to do that proprioceptive fast twitch adjustment like in the calves and ankle area and so mine is like quad you know a little bit of thigh but a lot of hip stuff and even in the spine and the ak is just way more less stable and then think about lever arm like some guys have like a nub that's like this long in their of their femur and so like that compared to like in a long ass femur is different. So yeah. So basically more, more joints and muscles, the better for amputee stuff. Um, it's kind of like, if you imagine it's the same concept, if you imagine someone that's an amputee in their arm, if they don't have their elbow then then they're way more limited, but if they have their elbow, they can almost use that to like, you know, kind of grab shit or depending on how much limb they have. So just, it really helps not only with prosthetics, but with uh, functionality. Um, and then in, I don't forgot what we were talking about. Man, right dude, I've, I've, I, I've always been amazed uh, by like any of the, um, I, I guess you could say like engineering advancements for amputees. Like I, yeah. I like last night we watched all the Olympics, um, so we recorded it. You know, we went out and played pickleball, and then came back, and uh, uh, I sat down and I like, uh, dude, I just love watching like uh, like the hundred, the two hundred, the four hundred. They had the steeplechase. Um, what else, uh, the hurdles. I mean, so like just watching this and then they cut to all the para stuff and like, I'm always fascinated by these like carbon fiber legs and yeah. the, uh, the one dude, and I forgot his name. Um, but, uh, he was competitive enough to be able to run with, you know, obviously the people that, you know, are, yeah. you know, non amputees. Is that the crazy guy? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, not the South African. He's yeah. in prison. Yeah. Yeah. He's oh, in prison. Okay. <laughs> but they, but but the reason they were saying is that it was an unfair advantage because as he continued to go, it was more kinetic energy was stored, and he was actually yeah. speeding up and making it faster. Yeah. And so they they were getting into a bunch of the uh, like um, engineering feats, and like I've always been fascinated by like 
you know, like the ways that these guys are trying to replicate, like you know, something which we think of as so basic, but it's so complex. Yeah. If you if you look at like just walking and the muscles, and then being able to change the gait into a jog and a run, and like the foot positions, and it's just it's so fascinating to see them model it on a computer and then try to like mimic it with all these different technologies. Like that shit is like if we were going to invest tax dollars into cool shit, let's put it into that. Yeah. And, uh, like to me, like, um, I, I've always felt, and we, we were at summer strong and got to hear, was it a uh, Cal Carpenter, mm-hmm. uh, get up and speak, which was fucking unbelievable. Uh, but like my whole thing is if you're going to send people to war, uh, you have to take care of them when they come back. If yeah. People are going to go over there and do this. Like you need to take care of them. You need to support them. And, uh, it's, uh, a fucking travesty. And like, that's like by far what like, you know, like you have to support these people. If you're going to go out and do this, you're going to send these people off into far off lands to do these things. And, you know, we've been there, what, 20 years. And I'm like, you know, what's the definition of, did we win? I mean, think about every, I mean, the Russians, I mean, Alexander the Great. I mean, everybody has tried to take these mountain people. It's and called like, the graveyard of empires for a reason. Yeah. 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 And, and dude, everybody's fucking broken their boats on the rocks. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to go fucking try our hand for what? And we're going to stay there 20 years. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to leave and it's going to go exactly back to the way, way it was. And yeah. so my whole thing is like, I mean, we did this in Vietnam. We've always done this. Like there, there's never, a, you know, what was it? The war on terror. Like that's yeah. just so ambiguous. Like give us a definition. Like what's our definition of winning? And there is none. And then, you know, you see like yourself or Kyle Carpenter come back and you're like, so young men, like they're the ones that are going over and doing this and coming home in these situations. And yeah. How are we supporting them? And there's, you know, f- official documentation from higher ups that were supposed to have the be the policy makers of the war that basically say, like, we're not accomplishing anything and there's no real end state. And that was like that came out several years ago. You know, well, so that's not that's not cool. First off, to continue just throwing bodies into a situation because the Green Berets are the ones, especially within the last five years and maybe a little longer the only people going into combat in Afghanistan were Green Berets, and then they might take some infantry with them. But, like, we are the effort there. It's not like there was another unit doing combat in Afghanistan anymore. Like, we were it. So, like, all the all the deaths from combat, other than a few guys, like, in Africa and, and uh, Iraq, Syria, all the deaths in the last, like, five years are from not only special forces, but a lot of them from my unit because we rotated our entire, like, uh, a larger element like a battalion sized element we rotated that like three times where we were like in charge of the country so like on my deployment after i got hurt i had um there were one two three green berets killed two eod kids that were supporting us um one of my friends killed himself due to suicide uh well he killed himself but um so yeah it's just like there's a toll to it and uh to your point like I lucked out in my individual circumstance where I have a really good prosthetics clinic in Denver where I don't have to travel out of state just to get care. That's not the norm for the VA. And then the VA is a fucking huge bureaucratic pain in the ass that takes a long time to just like try and get normal things that make sense. And then like another example is like TRICARE won't cover the sperm samples. Like it's not a thing that happens before you go to combat. There's nothing that's like, hey, the op- you have the option to get sperm samples taken if you want it, which you fucking should do because like now yeah. i'm in a situation where there's pieces of my testicles left and i don't know if they're going to work or not and 
So, and then furthermore, TRICARE doesn't cover the cost of storing those things now that I'm not active duty. No, I'm medically it's, retired. Um, so, the uh, wars of occupation are about transfers of wealth. And unfortunately, that's where we are. I mean, it's about taking tax dollars and basically funding private corporations and what. And it's, I mean, that's how DC politics and, uh, you know, uh, yeah. lobbyists and all the other stuff, it's wars of occupation transfers of wealth. And yep. dude, I mean, we have transferred a lot of wealth. I mean, look at the companies that have been built the empires and this I mean this is what it comes from and it's a uh, it's a sad realization when you're like what's the definition of winning yeah like, dude like you know and I I've always said uh, if we're gonna go fight a war before we ever drop the first bomb before we first ascend person figure out what uh, what like the marker for success whether yep. it's a win or a loss is I mean in World War one World War two we had a very clear defined deal Right, we got to stop the Germans' world domination, and there was a clear defined enemy. We knew what winning and losing was. Yeah. With with this, there is no winning and losing. I mean, it's uh, it just it feels like you guys are just standing out there, just fucking getting, you know, it, yeah, man. It's uh, I mean, I'm glad that we're removing ourselves from it. I wish that they would have made a fucking plan for that like five years ago, and actually stuck to a certain plan so that maybe you there could be there maybe could have been a different way to support the government that we leave behind or that we're still sort of partnered with. But I mean, like, I mean, it's, that's a, it's a, a incredibly complicated oh. situation well, in that country to like for power. And like, it's, it's, you know, well, they're going to be flapping a bit and we're not going to be able to support them in the same way, but we shouldn't be in fucking combat doing it. At well, this well, point, the, especially. The, the crazy thing is that there's so many um, like different factions so like you know i mean it's religious factions it's this it's like you know who's controlling who are you mm -hmm. dealing with it's like 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 there's no clear defined it's not like hey you know like hey, they're the germans there's hitler there's the ss like like it's i mean you know you you have mountain war firefighters you have this you you have uh, people that have been fighting each other for thousands of years and now it's like the enemy and my enemy is my friend kind of a deal that's an it's, arab uh, that's an arab or, or old bedouin uh idiom right there is yeah. uh, like it's it's like uh me against my brother, my brother and I against my family, my family and I against my tribe, and my tribe and I against the world. It's just like inherent infighting and then alliances depending on what the threat is. And it's even more uh, variable than what you just said because each fucking valley can have a significantly different cultural identity where these valleys don't interact with each other or they don't like each other. Or like if they need to go to a clinic, they have to walk to the next valley. But like... Yeah, it can, it's even, it's like Afghanistan's the size of Texas and it's culturally diverse as shit where like you can literally hit each province, which is just a line on the earth for them, doesn't mean anything. Same thing with like the Afghan pack border, like that doesn't mean anything to the, the people that fucking have lived there for thousands of years. Like, so it's just, it's just very, incredibly variable. And then just the bad guy elements alone have so many different networks within networks and stuff. I mean, whether I mean, you have tons of them, like Haqqani and uh, uh, Taliban, different offsets of Taliban. You have ISIS, and then ISIS and Taliban are fighting each other in these areas, and then they're not in these areas. It's just, it's, there's, there, there's a, re <laughs> they survive, but there's a, re you know, there's a reason that they're in war all the time, and it's just like the war never stops for them, and so they constantly are just infighting to well, try when, and I mean, when salvage they ever what you can. Peace? I mean, like, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can go back to the Bible and those people were still fighting. I mean, it's yeah. uh, like, I mean, you're talking about thousands of years of warfare, which it, th like to this day, I'm like, 
I mean, just seeing what that did in terms of like destroying the Soviet Union and the money that they put in, and they never won that. Yeah. I mean, and they were a hell of a lot more brutal than we are. I mean, just yeah. like the, I mean, the Russians had zero qualms. There was no Geneva Convention, and you know, hey, so and so did this. We're going to come back and try. I mean, shit. I mean, and yet we thought we could go over there and do it. It's a bad yeah. Because I studied all the tactics from the Soviet era, both from the Mujahideen, but also the Russian standpoint. Yeah, they they would. Like that attack helicopter that's in Rambo, they would just like have one of those in the front of their convoy and just and look for the. They could never really find them because ambushes come from green zones and they hide and stuff. But but if they saw people, just like you know, murder the shit out of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but th- th- going through all this, like I, I wasn't like a warmonger before. Like if I was going to be in combat, then I was like, then I'm going to fucking do combat, and that's like I'm gonna. If you're going to tell me to go do this mission, then I'm going to like. S- you know, I was the one that was like reconning by fire. Like, well, I'm going to shoot grenades, and that's why I'm alive. I think for in certain instances, but so regarding my foreign policy or whatever, it's or my philosophy in general that affects my idea of foreign policy. Like, I would want to see the world and societies in general like continuing to improve and uh, improve that that floor of like living conditions, and then also get to the point where like useless violence isn't necessary because I've been. Uh, subjected to like I've been blown apart and somehow fucking lived through it and I got to deal with that now for the rest of my life but like I would want to hope to share some of the experiences from that so that other people don't feel the need to have to go through something like that to get it because like for me it's like I just you know life is like this precious thing it's it's amazing and like I'm here and I get to cultivate relationships and I want to express like connection and joy and like stick around and be silly, but like have fun and, and love people and uh, like violence when necessary is something that I can always do. And I can always like turn that switch on cause I'm also trained to do it. But like, I want to live in peace and at ease and I would want other people to enjoy that and not have to worry about those things. And it's this weird thing. Cause it's like with society, how much Cause we, you mentioned something earlier about essentially a stress inoculation. I think like with kids uh, mm-hmm. being in pain or something when they're younger, yeah. but like what level of exposure of like bad shit is going to prepare you to be hardy, but not, you know, not, how can you do that in a, in a society that doesn't have to face that? Because other societies like in Afghanistan, there are fucking mud huts everywhere. Like there was a little girl. I remember vividly we were coming home from a mission. We had like dropped some bombs and killed like two dudes or excuse me, 10 and it was snowing and we could have stayed out there and there were like ridge lines around us and there was no ISR or medevac. And I was like, and my team sergeant and I were talking, I was like, this is fucking like, if we get fucked up here, we're fucked. Like, let's get out of here. So we were driving back. It was raining and snowing and there was a little girl. She was like three and she was standing on this rock and I was in the window of my little Humvee thing and she was barefoot. You know, it was like fucking 40 degrees and raining and, and wet sleet and snow accumulating on the ground. And she was just standing there. And she, they were waving because they wanted to say, like, thanks for killing the ISIS and liberating our village and shit like that. But I just remember, like, you know, anybody could have been born as her yeah. and, and been, like, this shoeless fucking girl that is just dealing with uh, being in Afghanistan. And then uh, – so, yeah, I would just want everybody – I would want everybody to put the effort in if we have the means to, like, help – you know, improve malaria in the world where people don't have to die from unnecessary things. Suffering is a part of life. It doesn't mean that we have to like suffer more than we need to. I mean, and, uh, uh, um, like like the ethnic genocide stuff that happens in Africa. Whenever you hear about that, is mm-hmm. like, 
I mean, like the ethnic cleansing, like they, they don't even put that shit on the news. I mean, yeah. if you ever want to like, you know, legitimately figure out what's going on in the world, you're not going to get it in the U.S. because we're too busy talking about the Kardashians and COVID yeah. and, you know, fucking a bunch of other nonsense. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there's terrible things that happen around the world and you're like, man, don't we have the ability to at least like make sure that everybody has the, you know, and, and I, I always think we're so lucky in this country, you know, we're born with, a, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and uh, realize how few people actually have that. Yeah. And then you hear people bitch and complain, and I like I hear this, yeah. and I'm like, I just think that fucking people's lives are too easy, that they gotta try to go create imaginary hardship, you know? It, yeah, I don't know where that line is, because that's something that I'm trying to, I kind of think about over time, because that's the benefit of freedom, is not having to worry about a lack of freedom, or not have to worry about where your fucking next meal is coming from, or whether or not there's going to be people that shoot a rocket into your family when they're just standing around in their neighborhood, which is what happened in Afghanistan after I left, and they, those casualties came, including a bunch of kids, came to our outpost. So, yeah, there, there's this element that there's a lack of appreciation for what we have, and so that's kind of where I want, where I steer it. Instead of like looking, I'll, I'll give you this story. I always tell this story, but like Secretary of Defense Mattis, when he was still SecDef was in Afghanistan when I was leaving on my first trip. So he spoke to a group of us, uh, Green Berets and Rangers. And uh, he's pretty cool. He's very smart. He's a very sweet guy and a uh, good speaker, uh, entertaining for to listen to for like over an hour, which is never the case with officers. And uh, one of the things that – the only thing I remember from that that talk was he was like, don't leave here – in this country and your experience with war, becoming a more hateful human being and like looking down on people because they haven't had these experiences, find ways to have that post-traumatic growth, become a more compassionate human and like use that as like your methodology of how you conduct your life. And so I just immediately started doing that. And I had uh, some horrible, I had a horrible rollover where a dude like got cut in half and he ended up dying an infantry kid. And, uh, then there's just like all the combat and I didn't, you don't really know what's going on with either trauma, emotional health or TBI as it's like happening. So I just started working on like journaling and introspection and meditating more and working on the emotional health and learning about it. And then, uh, right as I was coming to the cusp of like finding out what com self compassion means, then I stepped on a bomb. So it just kind of threw everything <laughs> for a loop, but I guess just the circle pause back, for two years, just yeah. hit pause for two years. Yeah. So I guess circling back, like, uh, the method like that. Yeah. I kind of, it's hard to say like how much, you know, hardship someone needs. And I don't think that people have to necessarily always do hard things in order to appreciate the not hard things. But obviously if nothing is ever hard, then when it is hard, I mean, that's part of what our training is, is like stress inoculation. Like I've done with like machine gun simulators and people yelling at me and time hacks to like do trauma medicine, uh, in a very chaotic environment where they're shooting paintballs at us and shit. So like, so when I did it in combat, like, I you know, I use my body to like block the incoming rounds from my patient because that's what I did in training. And I just, in like, I, I don't know, I'm in the fucking zone. It's like being in a game probably for when you're feeling like the zone in sport. That's like, I've responded to car wrecks where immediately it's just like, I'm back in the fuck. I'm a fucking green beret again. And I just take hold of the scene. And it, uh, so, well, dude, aren't you always a green beret? I guess, but I don't, I don't identify as it. Cause that's one of the things that, and maybe you have some comments about like from a professional athlete standpoint, but it's very hard for people to transition out of this thing that consumed everything about their life and they didn't have free time or like, you know, you said you didn't have a family and stuff like that's your identity when you, you commit, when you're actually a professional and you commit all your shit to it, 
and then you have to leave that occupation and like now your life is different like immediately i was like well that's over <laughs> like no, um like uh i always kind of looked at like um i've told these guys like i've had multiple uh like if the rock like i always joke if the rock is uh heading towards us and we see it i'll probably be like just take that just take a seat and be like it was a great life the, like the rock uh well yeah like rock dwayne johnson or a big yeah, yeah. meteor you know the one the guy that that killed the um imaginary dinosaurs right which is what he calls his right biceps big meteor <laughs> So, like, I always look at, like, uh, um, like you get a chance to live many lives. So, like, there was, yeah. like, one life that I got to lead up into a certain point, and, like, that was that one life. And almost, yeah. like, uh, you know, it feels like, you know, people like talk about past lives, but in the reality, it's, like, that was one life that you got to lead. And I think all too often we kind of characterize this idea of, like, here's your life to live, and I think you get the opportunity to live many lives. Yeah, especially so, in this fucking free-ass place and, like and you, you get can to be choose whoever you want, want. <laughs> yeah like i got a chance to be a professional football player for 10 years i had this whole existence and then all of a sudden one day it ends and you either you know chase that life for the rest of your life trying to you know you know live off of the glory and i always um, for me personally like when you see and and obviously the big salary probably helps these guys a lot yeah but like uh, when you see like the guys on tv and they're like tony terry timmy todd you know and they're like these guys like you know howie long like fucking great football player and there he is every sunday talking about football and people remember him as this player and yeah. i'm sure he's gone off and done other things but like i you know like what is terry bradshaw like are people going to remember terry bradshaw for what he's done later in life or they just remember him as the you know pittsburgh uh you know quarterback and well, dude my mom remembers him from whatever movie he was in she she yeah, loves yeah. him howie <laughs> long was also an actor yeah he was yeah he was in a bad movie he was like some like weird helicopter fire fire, fire thing. Yeah. But uh, like there's a situation where he's just living his best life and this is what he's doing. So like, you know, good on them. Yeah. But I think you get a chance to reinvent yourself and live multiple lives. Yeah. So, I mean, I think- you had, you know, you were, you know, rip a two and seventies big and then you, you know, that life ended and then you got a chance to go be a green beret. And like, you know, now that life is transitioned and now you're in this next period of your life. And, um, you know, the only thing I'm like, as you were talking, I'm like, why haven't you gone to med school? Like, like uh, why are you a doctor? I'll tell you what. I'm going to circle back because I have a funny story that especially for text to hear about you that I remember something from back in the Ooh. day. But first thing is that uh, I'm not doing school anymore. Like, I was a fucking had to do, like, three years of training just to become a Green Beret, and then life was training, and then things were really hard. So I'm basically going to take it pretty easy. If What I could do is I could, tr- like, almost laterally go into, like, physician's assistant type program, like a PA dude, program. you should be a trauma. You, you should be a trauma surgeon or, like, a like a dude in the, in the uh, like, in the, what do you call it, like, the trauma unit when they bring people in. Like, that to me seems like, and I'm sure maybe you don't want oh, to I could do, do that. that. I could do that, but I, would, I don't think I'd want to because I don't, I'm not going to work for anybody ever again. And then, yeah, I'm, like, my girlfriend who you know was probably going to become my wife eventually she's a surgeon uh so she's going to have a very high uh she has a very high time yield job and like uh, a lot of stress and stuff and i know what all that was about so like my job when and it's only recently uh a few months ago gotten to the point where i'm like i think i'm finally fucking mostly healed and like now i'm not like getting ravaged and tormented by this shit so like i can't even stand up long enough to you know, I, after 15, 20 minutes, I got to sit down. So the surgeon thing, I'd have to have some sort of Mission Impossible harness if I was going to do surgery. But all that being said, I'm not interested in more schooling. And then I love medicine, but um, like I wouldn't want to do it as like even a part-time job. I would, I would 
if I was a PA, I'd want to be like, I want to do this like once a week or like set my own boundaries. But it's just, I'm not interested in doing extra like work and, and school and stuff. Cause it's just like my job has been healing physically and emotionally, especially, uh, and learning how to do that stuff. And then kind of like, now I'm kind of pivoting back towards that synthesizing information and putting it out for people. And that's kind of where I'm going to, where this next, this like, that whole like two year period after the blast was like a phase of like healing. And now I'm like on, I'm finally medically retired in this January. So it's not, I haven't even been out that long. So now it's kind of like figuring out what this next part is. And there's probably, it's like, even if it's one to two years of figuring it out, then, and then cruising with it. But, um, I think that your philosophy on those periods of life that where you can kind of reinvent yourself, that's a great one to have and almost like should be taught on the front end of like a, a soft or like an, or a professional athlete job because having like help, like influencing someone to cultivate their, the other things in life is going to be important for them maintaining their sanity and shit, but then it helps them with that transition. So back to the story, I remember you were in, in the rips gym and I had a kid I was training and you didn't know his age. And I'm trying to figure out if it's funnier to tell you the age on the front or the back of the story. But you were, you were, he was kind of like, well, kind of mopey. And you know how, and let me set the stage for everyone else. I think there were no females in the gym. And then J- John has a way of joking around that is, is really funny and, and, uh, you know, makes fun of people and stuff. And I, and I love that stuff. And in this situation, there is a kid, you didn't know his age, which was plus or minus like, let's say five or 10 years. Right. And, uh, you were like, he was upset and you were like, well, you got a choice. Like, uh, you know, every morning you can wake up and you can have a Glock on your, uh, next to your toothbrush. And it's either, am I going to put this in my mouth? Or am I going to put the toothbrush in my mouth? And you get to decide every day. And you're just kind of like offhandedly giving like this random advice, you know? And then, uh, and then he like walked away and you were like, wait, how old are you? And he was like 15 and you're like, Oh fuck. I thought you were like 22 or some shit. Like you're, you're like, don't listen to that. Just, uh, you know, just, uh, stay positive. <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, that was funny. Like, yeah, you do have the choice. Like, you have the choice to like completely fucking uh, give up on all this, or you can survive. And uh, from my standpoint, whether it was getting blown up or all of the really shitty days since then, which there have been a lot of them, uh, it's like I've the one thing I'm that I know I can do is be resilient and learn from whatever the mistakes or hardships are, and then consolidate that into like trying to be better in the future. And that's like, I think that's one of the best take homes that anybody could do. Cause like the shit's it's always like there's, you can't avoid suffering in life because either you or someone you love is going to fucking die and there's no way around that. And it will happen eventually. And the fact that people may not have to deal with that till when their parents die or something, when they're adults, like that's great. And that they don't have to deal with like their siblings dying because of malaria or nutrition imbalances in fucking Africa. So, you know, you don't have to deal with all those like survival based things. And so, um, I don't know. That's why I want to like kind of tell the story or like give the experiences that like you, you don't have to fucking almost die. You don't have to be in combat to be like a man. Like you don't have to like do these things to like fully understand them, but you can cultivate your own appreciation for it. It's just like, you know, it's a skill. Gratitude is a skill. And like, and thinking about things in terms of like positivity and gratitude and trying to reduce your anxiety. Those are just the keys of like how to find a purpose instead of just people thinking that they have to do things in order to have purpose, like you can define it for yourself. So it's kind of like a big old fucking sloppy painting of philosophy that kind of like I got out of this whole deal, but yeah, it's uh, surviving and being resilient and uh, trying to figure out 
how that can kind of like what Mattis said, how you can grow from that as opposed to being a butthurt loser about it or something. You know, I don't know. And it's, um, uh, I think anytime that you do something, um, that is extremely rewarding, like, uh, your job or, you know, like I was fortunate to do my job. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people appreciated it at the time. I know I didn't like, it was just what we were doing. And I really, I just like lifting weights and getting paid to go out and fucking beat people's asses. Like I didn't yeah. appreciate like the influence. I didn't really like, I didn't appreciate like how much, um, how much pride and like love that my dad took in like coming to these games. Yeah. Like it was funny. My wife sent me a picture for yesterday was father's day of like my dad, uh, like, you know, in the stadium with a hat on and he used to like go take, uh, he would like get a new hat and he would go down and get my number embroidered on it. And so just like, you know, stupid shit. Yeah. But, um, like never like really appreciating like how much he, you know, um, I, you know, I invited him to every single game. I used to fly him out to a bunch of games and we, he loved it. And, yeah. uh, but like that appreciation, and I think when you're in the fight, like in doing it, like you're just kind of not trying to survive, but you're just trying to live your life the best way that you can and trying to like kind of maximize. And it's, it's only once you kind of, once it stops, like you can't necessarily appreciate the merry-go-round or the roller coaster until after where you like think about it and you're like, holy shit, yeah. what about this piece? What about this piece? If not, you just keep going. And I think you got to give it space to breathe. Like you got to step yeah. away from it. And for me personally, um, I was fortunate I got to play 10 years and I still feel that my career got cut short. I felt yeah. I could have done it for another two or four or five years. And I felt that when I got hurt, um, that I still had a lot left in me. And then all of a sudden, like the opportunity wasn't there anymore. And yeah. I, it, it took me, um, it took me a couple of years. It took me like four or five years to even be able to go watch football again. Yeah. Or necessarily be able to, to, to like talk about it and to like sit and you just got to like, it's just typical. Like you got to let shit breathe. You got to give it distance. You got to step away from it. You have to appreciate it for what it was. And then you start this new chapter and the guys that I know that played that couldn't end it and, you know, start the new chapter still continue to chase a life the best way that they could. And then they fucking shatter themselves on the rocks. And I'm like, dude, you got to like, yeah. and, and, and I don't know, you made a good point. Like how could they not teach that? I've never really heard anybody ever talk about, you know, cause you always hear people like, Oh, in my past lives, I'm like, I've had a ton of past lives. You know, I was a professional football player in a past life and now I'm in this and now I'm a dad and, uh, you know, we run power athlete and it's funny cause, um, uh, it, it felt like a bit of a past life on Sunday or Saturday when we went and taught that seminar. Uh, we, we got hired to go teach a continuing education deal here in Austin yeah. for this, uh, this gym. So Tex and I went over and we haven't taught one of those in a while. It's been a couple of years, but instantly it was like slipping on like an old coat that you found. And we got yeah. up and it was like, even text when I got up and gave some of the origin story stuff was like, dude, I haven't heard that in so long. I got goosebumps. Still packing a punchline, John. Yeah. And he's like, dude, you still can deliver the lines. I'm like, well, yeah. it's because like I'm that. Tyson. Still got it. Because I'm still funny. Uh, but, uh, and this podcast <laughs> hasn't fucking destroyed it. But um, it was really cool because as we got up there teaching, like we did that for, for a number of years when we worked with CrossFit and we taught all those CrossFit football yeah. seminars. And, you know, that stopped in 2017 and like that kind of like our association and what we did kind of like that life ended. And then the, like the new life we're in for power athlete exists and, and I'm sure they can overlap and whatnot, but I don't know why people don't look at it like that. Like you have the opportunity, like you said, because of where we are, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness to reinvent yourself in any way. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm, uh, um, well, I'm stoked to see how you reinvent yourself. Yeah, one one note on that: the 
tools, the assets, the leadership, the skills, it doesn't have to be a one-to-one. You can redirect it. The example we had, Harrison Bernstein, CEO for Soldiers to Sidelines, and his whole mission is to, to make a second career out of expats and get them to be sport coaches because yeah. they have the, the attitude, the approach, the posture, the leadership, the communication skills. And now, hey, you used to play football, lacrosse, hockey. I'm going to empower you and put you into a network that then allows you to give back using yeah. what, you, what you've developed over the years and help instill in youth, like the same leadership. Yeah, that's a pretty cool program because uh, the, the cultural aspects of the military will transfer very well into that, and it's like a positive outlet for that veteran that gets out. And then, John, the, 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 what you were referring to, um, I, I, I figured out, I think it was the beginning of this year, that like I, who I was when I stepped on that bomb like died, and I had like a near-death experience that was really fucking weird. But um, that self died, but the, those components of who I was didn't, and because the self is a process. It's not like... It's not like this is what I am for the rest of my life. It's like whoever you are that day. And what I've been able to do now is look back at like, there are pros and cons to the Justin that was like the Green Beret. And I get to take those pros and implement them into my personality or my psyche. And then the cons that like, maybe I wish I was doing things a little better with certain emotional aspects or something. What I just, I, now I, I learn from those and I can improve those or, or I don't have to hang on to those. And so it's like, I'm sure that there are lots of qualities from either of your guys' previous lives, as we're saying, like from John's football career that like, they're still a part of you, but you're not like, you're not like the football player anymore and you're comfortable with that and you're content, but like you get to take the beautiful things that came out of that, whether, even if it's the humor or even if it's like the work ethic or whatever and implement that into who you are. So I think, um, I think approaching it like that is helpful because then you get to pick and choose and then, with anything with you know uh, with film breakdown in, in sports or with aars in the military an after action review of a mission you're supposed to review what happened what was supposed to happen and then see these are the things that we did well these are the things that we sucked at and it's an objective thing and like so if you were supposed to you know your guard was supposed to do a reach block on a guy and he missed it or something or we didn't get the right calls or in combat like these meds weren't given with these other meds or we approached it with this type of tactic like we want to evaluate those things so doing it for the self or organizations like the army or nfl to a lesser extent but like we should be able to review it and then and then be like hey we fucked up on these things like we fucked up on how we conducted this war so stop pretending that we didn't so let's learn from that so we don't do this shit in the future because this is dumb and uh do we need to prop up our economy with this like like no like let's we can do we can do better and you can always do better and so it's like appreciating what is so it's not just like browbeating yourself or not doing better and then incorporating those lessons of what we can improve and all of that is just a way to say like i taking pieces of the past i mean that's how you grow right i mean that's how you that's how you are who you are in a moment is like uh properly reflecting or properly like exhibiting your all of your past selves in like a singular moment type thing and so yeah I, I like both of those with the transition of the military that you were talking about text and then that whole concept of yeah I think it should be taught there's a there's a vacuum there it needs to be filled well I mean uh, I think we do a really good job I mean and it doesn't matter if it's organizations like the US military or like NFL professional sports I mean they are so focused on you 
completing the task at which they're hiring you for that they don't prepare you for what it looks like after or before or any of the yeah. other problems. Like, hey, let me just hand this kid a bunch of money. And, uh, you know, like, uh, like, how are we managing it? What are they doing? And you see, you know, people get, you know, fucked up and they do some dumb stuff and there's never any kind of coaching. But at the end of the day, they are, well, I mean, the NFL is a for-profit business and we're just, you know, little pawn pieces in a, you know, in a, you know, you know some old rich guy, as uh, yeah. Tom Modrak told me, um, uh, what would he say? It was, uh, never, never forget that you get paid money. Oh, God, I can't remember what the quote, but he uh, he was our GM, walked over to me one day. He's like, I want you to remember something. He goes, uh, you get paid a lot of money to do violence on behalf of old rich men. I never forget that. And it was just kind of an interesting point that, like, I think about. And, um, you know, for the Dude, same, that's right? the same for me. What it's the, the same for the military. <laughs> I mean, you know, the U.S. government, regardless, is a for-profit organization. And the sad part is um, our greatest export in the United States is war. Yeah, you know, I mean, we don't make anything. We don't really export anything. I mean, we were pretty kicking ass on oil, and then fucking Biden came in, and now we're not. But um, for the most part, our greatest export has always been warfare. And um, there's like know. six thousand military bases around the world, yeah, or some shit like that. Like, it's <coughs> insane. Yeah, it's it's, uh, uh, it's the uh, the Cold War. It's like the chess piece strategy of the Cold War, just occupying areas to, as a deterrence. Um, that whole like NATO approach of deterring the Russians from doing the same thing. So it's like, yeah, it sucks. And uh, I wonder like how it would have been different had I not, I don't know, like I had this like gaping hole of like wanting to like do something or test myself or, you know, I'm not, I don't think that, I, I don't think the word toxic masculinity is something that I like hearing, but like there is like an element to like overly masculine from the eighties, especially, you know, as grown up, I was born in the 80s, so I didn't necessarily grow up too much there. But, like, that weird hyper-aggressive uh, but, like, business-oriented approach that was also still pretty hardcore misogynistic and kind of, like, just kind of like a very uh, weird way of, like, as the economy expanded after all those decades of warfare and shit. It's just I wonder how it would have been different if all that stuff was different. And our approach to warfare and our essentially our propaganda about the warfare would have been different. And then, furthermore... If we are going to conduct war, like you said, let's have a fucking <laughs> let's have a plan. It's not it's like really dumb when you think about it. Like we're going to have a plan and we should like know exactly why these dudes are dying. Because like I've, I have friends that got killed and like like what? if this is managed differently, would would they have, would they be here right now? And, uh, you know, that, that matters to their families. There's gold star wives. There's kids like, you know, that shit matters. So, <sighs> well. At least, at least things are all right today, right? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I mean, it's um, like I sometimes think, uh, you know, when you think of these huge concepts, they get overwhelming. You know, like it's, uh, you know, and I go back to Andy Stump's talk that he gave at uh, Power at the Symposium years ago about little dominoes, just waking up each day and trying to accomplish one task and one task. And he, he gave a great talk about how he got through buds that everybody's like, oh, I want to finish buds. He's like, I want to get through tomorrow. Well, I just even get less through. than the six... A meal every six hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to get to the meal, and uh, and then you just set up a whole bunch of little dominoes, and then all yeah. of a sudden you, you you get momentum. And I think with a lot of stuff, and especially in your situation, you know, there was probably like, you know, hey, I you know I want to get back, but then it's like, hey, here's my next milestone. I want to get to this. I want to get to this, and then here you are, two years later, and you've accomplished so much coming back from this injury. Um, 
that you're almost like, now what do I do? Now you got to probably set another big goal and start knocking down little dominoes. Yeah, I I started making the joke on the day after I got blown up when two of my a few of my teammates came and saw me in Bagram, and I still had one foot, but one of them was clearly gone. And uh, I was just like, well, uh, you know, uh, you got to put one foot in front of the other, even if you ain't got any. And I like said it probably every three minutes because I was on ketamine and don't remember anything. But, but yeah, it's I mean it. it those little dumb sayings mean are a little different, especially when they have a double or triple entendre, but like literally just putting a foot in front of the other, like I've been in land nav situations where I'm like, if I don't get all these points today, like I'm going to get fucking failed out of this shit. And, uh, so it's just like, I have a, I personally, I have a knack for like when shit is, uh, going really awful or absurd, or there's like these really intense situations where I'm, or I'm, I'm faced with failure, in other words, then I figure it out and accomplish whatever the fucking task is. And obviously when you do that, you can't be worried about the shit that happens after it. You just have to funnel it into right now. Like this is, you know, that's why guys probably like, guys and some girls like combat is because uh, there is no past and future when you're doing it. It's like one of, it is a, one of the more mindful things you can do. It's just not... Uh, <laughs> helpful in a mindful way but like you're if you're when you're in the zone of anything you're you're all you're doing is you're being present with the moment and so i think cultivating that helps with like meditation and shit but like yeah there's no past or future you just accomplish the shit and then we in the military we have those phrases i'm sure you've heard it from like stump or anything or anybody like that where you have your targets you have your 300 meter targets your hundreds, fifties, like if you have a five meter target, you shoot that shit first and then you go to the next farthest one and the next farthest. So you have the things that come up to you, but you want to like in the, in your planning for that shooting iteration, you're like, I'm going to have a 300 meter off to hit it at the end. But it, I guess what I'm saying is you can, you can plan out what you need to do time wise. And that's, that's normal, like goal setting and accomplishing it. But it's, uh, I guess reducing the anxiety in that process about thinking about the future bullshit helps and then also knocking out shit sometimes when you know people procrastinate like focusing on those tasks those near-term tasks can really help people because then you start ticking them off like you were saying but um i think that yeah one foot in front of the other i mean because if you just survive a day because like each sometimes days suck right like all of us are going to have a day that is like fucking it's going to be the worst day of our life whether that's in the past or in the future but you're going to have the next worst day of your life at some point in the future and like surviving that day is the first order of business and, and like sometimes if it's a an emotional health issue like with guys that have tbis or emotional health or trauma issues um or or anybody not just guys but like when you're faced with that like getting through that day like the next they're not all going to be like that the shit doesn't last forever the bullshit isn't going to last forever just like conditioning and football or like horrible things in selection like the shit won't last forever and there's a one mentality of embrace the suck i think that just means kind of be you know not let the suck have an effect on you in the moment but like that's different that's easy physically and very hard emotionally and uh just getting through a day or getting through a night like when that sun comes up the next day it's like it's different and uh you know it's just like taking a step like each day is a step and you get through the shitty steps and just keep i don't know you just have to keep going and there's no i don't know like people always ask about resiliency you just have to like i don't know you just have to keep fucking going that's all you can do and trying to improve yeah i think people throw in the towel too early and um i mean they do it and i think it's easy to 
oh, well, you know, my brain's not working well. I've heard that one all the time. Oh, I got fucked up. I'm like, everybody got fucked up. Yeah. You know, like, um, I mean, but that's a deal you make with the devil. Like, you you cut that deal on the first day. Now you've got to mitigate and manage. And, you know, like, what are you just not going to get up and go do what you're going to do? you got to still go out and do, you know, whatever, uh, you know, identifies you. And I, I yeah. think about, uh, um, you know, like, I think humans are the only species that feel sorry for themselves. Like I probably, you know, I mean, we're, it's, we're it, chimp, but we're also orangutans with identities. <laughs> so well, we're fucking mean, think, animals at the same time. Think about so that. all the like, stuff makes sense. All the shit that you go through makes sense. <laughs> it's just that, like, if someone is having an emotional response to something, that's what we're supposed to do because of how we evolve and how we survive. Like you fight, flight, freeze, and helplessness. Like that's that's terror, rage and fucking panic like those are like normal things just the intensity of it but to your point like there'll be a shutdown and uh i think audacity helps and i think you learn audacity in sport and uh sometimes with you know at the same time training could to a lesser extent but like when you have the audacity to believe you can accomplish something like you're a fucking terribly powerful force if you have fucking audacity to be like no i'm i i can fucking fix i can like heal this relationship if that is applied to emotions in the same way that we apply it to all these physical things that we learn through sport or just various, whether military or not, whatever, but like having the audacity that you can fucking accomplish something and the confidence that you can actually pull that shit off. Like, I don't know. Like I had the confidence that I could live through this thing where I'm like blown apart. And like, I don't know. Audacity helps. <laughs> it's just being a brute force and ignorance is what I like to call is it. Is it audacity or just tenacity? Like, um, yeah, I think as long as, uh, you know, as long as we're breathing, you still have to play, you know, yeah. like, like that's a weird one where, um, you know, like people decide like, Hey, I don't want to play today or I don't want to play this game called life. At that point, you just kind of roll over. Like you got to get up. You're going to have to sit at the table, shoot your cards, you know, roll your dice, do whatever it takes. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, um, and I, dude, I, I saw this all the time with football players and, uh, we've seen it with guys in the military. All of a sudden they get up and because the game isn't the game that they selected anymore, they don't want to play it anymore. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's the thing about life. You don't get to select the game. You maybe get to select the game sometimes, but sometimes the game selects you. You yeah. just got to continue to play and continue to do the best you can. And uh, I think as long as I get up every day and I'm able to continue to play the game that we, you know, we create or, or whatever game creates me, uh, then we get to live this thing called life. And at the end of the day, like, it was funny. I just read a study uh, this morning at like 6 a.m. that they, um, they looked at all these extraneous factors, like, uh, like diet, sleep, everything. And you know what they figured out? In the end, everybody dies. And that, <laughs> and that humans, like think, think about that. Humans have an expiration date. It's like, uh, like, like milk out in the sun. Some milk might last a little bit longer, but some milk won't. And like it was pretty interesting. Like, like they have this, they, they've been searching for this idea of life extension in this. And they were like, there's a very real point at which humans just wear out and that's the end of it. Yeah. Milk was a bad it. choice. Yeah, milk was a bad choice. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, and they were talking about like centurions and this, and they were like, you know, they're aging. Certain people age at a slower rate, but it's like a battery to some extent. Like some batteries, I'm sure you put in your clicker and they last for a year. Others last for, th for six months. Yeah. But eventually you have to replace those batteries. And so it was, uh, came out of Denmark. As I'm reading that study, I'm like, God, that's really fucking depressing. I was really yeah. hoping this was going to be like, hey, we figured out the point. But then you think, would you want to live forever? Think about how lonely that would be. You know, I was, um, you it's know, like you interview with the vampire shit right there. Yeah. Everybody, you know, dies yeah. and no, and, and then eventually you get to the point where you're, uh, you lived in a time that is different and there's nobody that identifies with the time at which you're from. 
Mm-hmm. How fucking sad is that? And then you're walking around like a vampire dressed up like a fucking, I don't know, goth dude in San Francisco in 1990-something <laughs> with a weird fucking fedora. <laughs> it makes me think of what you are what you were talking about a second ago. It makes me think of Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Well, and this vi- and second podcast in a row, someone has brought that yeah, up. Yeah, that's one nice. of the required readings for Power Athlete. Nice. It's one of my 100% books, too. And like the, the will to meaning is uh, going into the logotherapy that Frankl was writing about before he was in Auschwitz. That will to meaning is his, as opposed to like whatever the other ones were, like will to ego and shit from like Freud and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name right now. But but basically the will to meaning Isn't is finding Nietzsche. The, Nietzsche? Uh, yes. And then one more, I think maybe Adler, too. Uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, I've been blown up, so I don't remember, but, uh, that's, that's my excuse. You can't use that fucking excuse anymore. <laughs> With you, I can't, but like everybody else is like, well, that's a good point. Like when I talk to comedians, they're like, okay, yeah, I mean, I'll have to help them remember. <laughs> uh, but the, the will to meaning, like, uh, having per- like purpose changes over the course of life. And then the person that defines that is the individual, not the circumstance. And, uh, that's an interesting complete shift which is obviously Frankel's thing is kind of restructuring frameworks of how he's approaching situations to to give someone existential ease or whatever but yeah the finding that purpose and what it is that's happening uh is helpful so like the the constructs like from man's search for meaning help with that but that's what jumped out to me uh because he you you I forget what phrase you said but he had to like make the decision of whether or not he wanted to try and live or not and when people made when people gave up, like you were alluding to, they would fucking die in like a day. Like yeah. he saw it all the time and he talks about it in that book and you guys have read it. So like, yeah, like if the, in the also survival books, if you've ever read anything like about people in the mountains or on the ocean boat or something that are in survival situations, when they fucking give up, they're, they're out. So it's yeah. like, there's this weird, this weird, like mind, it's, uh, it's the, cla- the dumbest, the stereotypical thing, like mind body connection. There's some weird, influence you can have with the tenacity maybe is what the best way to describe it is of just uh stubborn will stupidity to live yeah just just blind uh fucking direction i mean uh like i like i was saying like i've, I've seen this for years and dude i saw it yesterday when uh i'm gonna fucking talk about playing pickleball it's fucking hot out there and the guy i'm playing yeah. all of a sudden he's bending over trying to catch his breath squatting down and he keeps telling me how tired he is and at that point i just fucking just literally just sped up the speed of the game and just fucking tried like a, like I was hitting serves. I was trying to like make him run because I knew he was fucking yeah. broken, and I it's knew he like wouldn't in, last. And it's like, like in your ping pong table, you know, someone has a shitty backhand, and you're like, I'm gonna expose the shit out yeah, of that now. And, and but but I mean, the minute that you tell and you and you kind of um, admit to yourself that you're I'm tired, it's hot, and you start creating all these excuses, all of a sudden at that point you're fucking broken. Like I I never would do it when uh you know on these god awful days, and dude, it's nothing compared to what you went through. But like you're out there banging and this and guys would be like, oh, it's so hot. I'm like, don't even notice it. I'm not even yeah. going to let that negativity enter. Like I'm not even going to let you know I'm tired. I'm never going to yeah. I'm, I'm never going to let on because I always felt that once you started acknowledging that stuff and admitting it to other people, then you were already broken. And um, I, I think with a lot of that stuff, I mean, um, you know, the mind's a powerful thing. And I think we can persevere through a lot of shit as long as you're able to just like you said, put one foot in front of the other, get up, keep going, keep going. So I like to joke around too, because joking around can almost like acknowledge the suffering that you're going through, especially in a group environment. So an example in football, would be like, dude, this fucking it's it's kind of hot, huh? You a little hot over there, boy? Like you kind of like give someone a hard time, but like, 
I mean, like, or getting shot at. I'm like, dude, this fucking sucks. And I'm like trying to dick around. And so I, I like that method too. Cause, uh, it, cause then you have the team dynamics thing. And that's obviously you could probably have hours to talking about that, but well, like team hum- dynamics, is humor just, alleviates a lot of shit. Yeah. Like if you can laugh about some stuff, yeah. like I, <laughs> I always wonder, and we were bringing up that book, like, uh, you're talking about Auschwitz. Like I always wonder, um, did anybody ever laugh? Like, yeah. Is laughter ever heard in that? Like, uh, like, did they sit around? Like, I mean, you know, like, like, is the pictures? Uh, like, I saw a statistic that like it was like eighty percent of millennials don't believe the uh, the Holocaust happened. I'm like, then they need to fucking take those people and send them to Germany because those places are still standing. Yeah, I mean, I got a chance to visit it. We went to Nuremberg and got to wow. see all of that. But I mean, to see the pictures of those scarecrows and those people and like, you think like, how could, how could a, a you know how could a human do that to another human? And then you think about like the buying in of ideology over humanity and you can get all in, in, you know, super deep on that. But at the end of the day, I just think like, was there ever like a flower? Like they were walking and there was just a random, you know, wildflower. Did anybody ever laugh? Like, was there a joke? You know, because I think he mentions a sunset in one, in one of the scenes where they all just go out and look at it or something. Doesn't he? Like something like that. Yeah. But I, I, the simulated, you know, I, this will be more of an off-air th- conversation, but the simulated POW environment that I was in, uh, I wasn't there very long, like five days, hadn't eaten in like 10, didn't sleep in like five days, but um, that wasn't real, so I was able to joke around there. And uh, But I don't know. Like uh, probably I would say that not everybody probably jokes around in those situations, but the people that do probably really help others and themselves because – uh, one of the things I have, not a mantra, but like a kind of a, like a react to contact thing for me is to make light of it, uh, of something. And uh, so if some, if I'm getting faced and I feel those, uh, those, I have the awareness to feel when my emotions are getting spiked, if they're trauma induced or not, and I can feel them start percolating in my body. And then if it's like being irritated, it'll be like, we'll make light of it. And so whether that's with the pee pee joke or, you know, like just being like, oh, whatever, that just, this doesn't really matter, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Either way, like I just try and make light of it. And I, you would hope that there'd be some, a few laughs every now and then in Auschwitz, but they're probably few and far between because starving sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that shit sucks. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, dude. What like, that's, amazing uh, fucking that's person a whole, that can yeah, endure the, that. Like, that's a whole different deal. I mean, like, yeah. It's uh, it's fucking crazy the atrocities that the man has created or has has inflicted upon other man and like yeah. I've, I've always said like what gets scary for me is when people abandon humanity for ideology, because ideology allows you to do that shit to people. Like yeah. I mean, you know, I was reading about you know like the ethnic genocide happening in Africa. Well, this group is not of our origin, so then they're not human, so we just got to get rid of them. Yeah. And it's and it allows people to do fucked up shit because it allows them to subscribe to something bigger and being like, no, it's another person. Yeah, like, you know. So I'd like to see that improve because because for especially for a while in the last two years, like seeing people as individuals or groups of people suffer. Like I had a different empathy for that, and uh, whether it's like disabled people or just like someone that would be having a certain label, like I kind of like empathize with them, and it allows me to. I feel like it's allowed me to not only implement that humanist approach, but also see different sides of an issue where it's not left wing, right wing oriented. It's like, yes, there are, I can understand this argument over here with whatever fringe we're talking about. I don't agree with it and thinks it's fucking stupid, but like, I understand their point 
I understand these people's points, their tactics are shitty. So it allows me like that empathy of like humans allows me to want to help them in a different way. Not, not that I can, but to want to help society facilitate helping them, but also like do it in a way that's not fucking dumb in general. Uh, and maybe just be more, a little more like implement good critical thinking about it. Cause I think compassion for self and others is like, a it's really helpful for being able to think through things. Cause then you're not framing it with not considering someone else, I guess, in their situation. Yeah. I think, um, I think if anything, what the last year has taught us is that, uh, that you can definitely use fear as the massive motivator and even the fear of the unknown. Oh like, yeah. Like it, it's it, like it, this is a case study. This is a research. Like, like people are going to write about this period in history Oh yeah. Uh, based upon like this idea of like an imaginary fear that, uh, you know, here's this imaginary virus that might get you might not. And you probably have to go get tested to even figure out if you have it. And we're going to somehow, you know, separate ourselves and destroy economies and fucking end, uh, you know, huge parts of business and this and families and, you know, people are dying because they can't get in for some elective surgeries. And I mean, we're going to create all this out of, uh, you know, something that at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it, dude, it's, uh, it's mind blowing to me and to see people uh, who really subscribe to fear like the fear of the unknown that I'm going to wear this mask that's going to somehow and yet I'm going to attack people that don't and it just man it's um it's really really interesting and scary uh, yeah. for me that uh that they can and then they you know who's they I don't know but just that the powers that be can set this thing up and whether it's accurate or not I'm not saying that it's not but like the fear of the unknown can be so powerful and can be weaponized in such an interesting way that uh, mm -hmm. it's it's like nothing I've you know like, like we'll ever see in our lifetimes and I, and people will write books and stories and uh, I'm really interested to see what this looks like ten years from now. Yeah, and the thing is that the players involved are foreign and domestic, so that in, that is a lot. Foreign and domestic governments, companies, and political parties, and all of those have incentive on all sides of whatever the issue you're referring to. In this case, like the pandemic or COVID or riots and shit. All of them have extreme monetary and power incentives to fuck with it, whether they're inciting or trying to curb it. And we know that it's happening all the time. Like there are embedded contractors throughout the entire country to influence things like whether it's pipeline stuff or obviously like probably Portland and shit like that. So, yeah, there's there's just players that we know about when you're in like the you kind of have to I work with the I refer to them community. as bad actors that there's right. bad actors everywhere and there's and bad then, actors put in place to influence certain things uh, yeah. you know you look at the media and the way the algorithms and how this is manipulated in this and this yeah and we are being uh, like I feel like mass scale manipulation and when you look at this I'm like take a step back and let's look at this as a rational human being and the problem is when you do that uh, then the mob attacks yeah and it's it's like to me it's um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it just it uh, the fact that we you know shut down schools and we've shut down economies and destroyed an entire swaths of business, and it's like uh, for the fear of the unknown. And yeah. the interesting thing is how willing people were to do it. You remember the hey we you know we got a quarantine for three weeks to flatten the curve and then all of a sudden that turned into a year, and yeah. it's um, it's pretty interesting that the people that we've looked at as you know our leaders, the people that are 
um, are, I, I think, fucking, I wouldn't hire them to fucking make me burgers at the local fucking burger stand. Yeah. That's I mean, a the beginning executive is, is, that, is, is very hard. And then, well, like, because there's, like, even if we're just looking at it, like, medically, like, the medical system was, like, getting tapped out. And, like, when you think, it's, like, sort of like war, but, like, you're looking at your logistics. And it's probably, you know, on a national level, so fucking complicated, too. And then you have people that are not thinking, like you just said. Instead, they're thinking in terms of power or money. And, and or reaction. Uh, that or, that or gets reaction. convoluted as fuck, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like, you remember, like, the, you know, we're going to need to do all this thing for ventilators. And then they figured out they were killing people the ventilators because they were over-fucking-filling their lungs. And it wasn't a respiratory issue. So I mean, Not all ventilators are created equal, yeah. Yeah. I mean, dude, some of them were fucking at turbos and horsepowers and popping dudes' lungs. And then, oh, shit. oh, yeah, no, I mean, there was a whole bunch of weird shit. And then they figured out that, like, you know, and that, and that was one piece. And, I mean, just, it, um... You know, and then like uh, you remember, they were like, "Oh, the hydroxychloroquine doesn't work." And then all of a sudden, we see Fauci emails where it does. And I, I brought this up. I'm like, if it did work, and the media and different people were spinning that it didn't, shouldn't those people? I mean, think about the amount of people that died that could have been helped with something like that. Yeah, and you know, like vitamin D is heavily correlated with uh, like the better outcomes with COVID in particular. And, and obviously, obviously, yeah, vitamin outside. D is say that again. Oh, I, I said zinc was the other one, but vitamin yeah. D being outside, so putting people in quarantine and making them stay in their homes, not letting right. them go outside. But the, there's like some kind of law, and I'm not, I'm not like spun up on all this, but something that would have made vitamin D is like a treatment thing if it was like officially recommended as something that could help. And then it would have to be studied and like approved by, I assume, something within the FDA. But that result, I think Rob was talking, Rob Wolf was talking about this on one of his podcasts recently, but it basically means that it prevented the mass recommendation of something like holistic, like vitamin D and sleep and like actual, like uh, preventative Exercise. measures that really affect, cause I had COVID and, uh, and I was with Sturgill Simpson on, on his arena tour and he got it and was jacked up. And then I got it and had just like minor, minor upper respiratory stuff. But like, uh, like me being on a lot of vitamin D and like taking care of myself holistically, uh, I would have a d much different outcome than if I was, you know, obviously, uh, deficient in those things or unhealthy. Can I have a timeout real quick? Yeah, well, um, that piss come out of my ears. Well, dude, uh, I was gonna say we're at three hours. So oh, rock um, and roll. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, man, like I was just kind of waiting for you to get a pause and and we can do it. But dude, uh, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, uh, yeah, because I got to well, use the restroom too. Yeah, we'll we'll aim for a part two later on. And yeah, dude, it was right uh, it, it was kick ass to to connect, man. It's been too long, and um, yeah, dude, I. Uh, yeah, it uh, like just me with my head in the sand. It wasn't until Texas like, oh, we're getting Justin Lassig on. I'm like, oh shit, and yeah. then uh, and then he I like told it. me, and I was like, oh shit. So no, it's great that you got to come on, dude. I um, always appreciated all of our time together, and yeah, man, I'm I'm uh, I'm so sorry that this had to happen to you, but I'm also so proud to see how resilient you've been, and anything I can do to support you in any way, dude. Power athletes here for you, and I'm here for I you. I appreciate dude. that, and. Uh, Wish you all the best. So I'm gonna link you up with Gary Garza from the Special Forces Foundation. He's an awesome dude, and he'll uh, dick around with you a lot too. And then uh, I thanks for having me on this. And uh, like maybe whether it's at one of your guys' events or like a, a winter summer strong type thing. Like I'm sure that we'll see both of you sometime soon because now this shit ain't on lockdown, so we can well, fucking we, we can do be. have a we do have a event in September for our block ones. If you got a little free time in September, we'd love to have you out and uh, tell your story and interact with people. And it'd be great to see you. Yeah, sweet. I'll chat with Tex then. 
Yes, Sounds we'll good. we'll follow up with that. And if our listeners want to follow any of your very long form conversations, checking out the minutes on your podcast, where should they look? They can go to the easiest thing is just justinlasic.com, L A S C E K. And then uh, 70s Big is still a thing, and I'm about to start breathing a little life into it. Seeing, uh, I mean, I gotta, <laughs> I also gotta make a little money now because like my disability is a, a pay cut. So I gotta see if I can do the fun things to just pad that a little bit but there'll be some products i'm going to do for 70s big i got a patreon for my regular website which is just on the website and uh, if people want to learn more about how to interact with me then all that shit's on there all the socials and and i'll be writing and speaking and and hanging out and uh you know just being a being a mountain hippie i guess who who wants to be jacked and tan at the same time sounds good <laughs> man I'm, I'm with that you, uh, you could start uh, 80s jacked so you got 70s <laughs> big, and now the evolution is 80s jacked. Well, yeah. we, we're sending Justin a, a power athlete new, the Liberty oh, Tank. Done. So done. expect... I rock tank tops almost... It's either flannel, because today it's like cloudy and like 60 degrees out there, raining in the mountains, but it's either flannel or tank top. Fuck There's you. no in-between for me. It's, it, dude, we're about to be... Um, did you ever see... Um, God, what was that movie with Vin Diesel? It wasn't... Was it Pitch... No, it wasn't Pitch Fast Black. Fast Five? No, it wasn't Pitch Black. Oh, it was um, um, Riddick. It's the same character. When they're yeah. on like that, like a uh, uh, prison planet, and all of a sudden the sun comes up and scorches everybody, and they're like oh, trying yeah. to. That's basically Texas. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. Every morning I was like, oh, just... this is Texas. Yeah. Well, not in September, yeah, Justin. September. So you'll be you'll be, be in luck. It's cool. Well, he used to live in Wichita Falls, so he oh, he knows God. what North Texas is like. Uh, at least where we live is is actually palatable. That area is like the fucking devil's hand. That's like Southern Oklahoma, though. To be <laughs> to be fair to Texas. Yes, that's yeah, that's a bad deal. But uh, dude, hey man, thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon, amigo. Be good. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Take care. All right, thank you. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com/backslash/training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!